Chapter 14 of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. 4. June 17th. Just as my hand was on the door of my room, I heard Sir Percival's voice calling to me from below. "'I must beg you to come downstairs again,' he said. "'It is Fosco's fault, Miss Harkham, not mine. "'He has started some nonsensical objection "'to his wife being one of the witnesses, "'and has obliged me to ask you to join us in the library.' "'I entered the room immediately with Sir Percival. "'Laura was waiting by the writing-table, "'twisting and turning, her garden hat uneasily in her hands. Madame Fosco sat near her in an armchair, imperturbably admiring her husband, who stood by himself at the other end of the library, picking off the dead leaves from the flowers in the window. The moment I appeared, the Count advanced to meet me and to offer his explanations. A thousand pardons, Miss Harkham, he said. You know the character which is given to my countrymen by the English. We Italians are all wily and suspicious by nature in the estimation of the good John Bull. Set me down, if you please, as being no better than the rest of my race. I am a wily Italian, and a suspicious Italian. You have thought so yourself, dear lady, have you not? Well, it is part of my wiliness, and part of my suspicion, to object to Madame Fosco being a witness to Lady Glyde's signature, when I am also a witness myself. There is not the shadow of a reason for his objection, interposed Sir Percival. I have explained to him that the law of England allows Madame Fosco to witness a signature as well as her husband. I admit it, resumed the Count. The law of England says yes. But the conscience of Fosco says no. He spread out his fat fingers on the bosom of his blouse and bowed solemnly, as if he wished to introduce his conscience to us all in the character of an illustrious addition to the society. What this document which Lady Glyde is about to sign may be, he continued, I neither know nor desire to know. I only say this. Circumstances may happen in the future which may oblige Percival or his representatives to appeal to the two witnesses, in which case it is certainly desirable that those witnesses should represent two opinions which are perfectly independent the one of the other. This cannot be, if my wife signs as well as myself, because we have but one opinion between us, and that opinion is mine. 
I will not have it cast in my teeth at some future day that Madame Fosco acted under my coercion and was, in plain fact, no witness at all. I speak in Percival's interest when I propose that my name shall appear as the nearest friend of the husband and your name, Miss Halcombe, as the nearest friend of the wife. I am a Jesuit, if you please to think so, a splitter of straws, a man of trifles and crotchets and scruples. But you will humour me, I hope, in merciful consideration for my suspicious Italian character and my uneasy Italian conscience. He bowed again stepped back a few paces, and withdrew his conscience from our society as politely as he had introduced it. The Count's scruples might have been honourable and reasonable enough, but there was something in his manner of expressing them which increased my unwillingness to be concerned in the business of the signature. No consideration of less importance than my consideration for Laura, would have induced me to consent to be a witness at all. One look, however, at her anxious face, decided me to risk anything rather than desert her. I will readily remain in the room, I said, and if I find no reason for starting any small scruples on my side, you may rely on me as a witness. Sir Percival looked at me sharply, as if he was about to say something. But at the same moment, Madame Fosco attracted his attention by rising from her chair. She had caught her husband's eye, and had evidently received her orders to leave the room. "'You needn't go,' said Sir Percival. Madame Fosco looked for her orders again, got them again, said she would prefer leaving us to our business, and resolutely walked out. The Count lit a cigarette, went back to the flowers in the window, and puffed little jets of smoke at the leaves, in a state of the deepest anxiety about killing the insects. Meanwhile, Sir Percival unlocked a cupboard beneath one of the bookcases, and produced from it a piece of parchment folded longwise many times over. He placed it on the table, opened the last fold only, and kept his hand on the rest. The last fold displayed a strip of blank parchment with little wafer stuck on it at certain places. Every line of the writing was hidden in the part which he still held folded up under his hand. Laura and I looked at each other. Her face was pale, but it showed no indecision and no fear. Sir Percival dipped a pen in ink and handed it to his wife. "'Sign your name there,' he said, pointing to the place. You and Fosco are to sign afterwards, Miss Halcombe. 
opposite those two wafers. Come here, Fosco. Witnessing a signature is not to be done by mooning out of window and smoking into the flowers. The Count threw away his cigarette and joined us at the table with his hands carelessly thrust into the scarlet belt of his blouse and his eyes steadily fixed on Sir Percival's face. Laura, who was on the other side of her husband, with the pen in her hand, looked at him too. He stood between them, holding the folded parchment down firmly on the table, and glancing across at me, as I sat opposite to him, with such a sinister mixture of suspicion and embarrassment on his face, that he looked more like a prisoner at the bar than a gentleman in his own house. "'Sign there,' he repeated, turning suddenly on Laura, and pointing once more to the place on the parchment. "'What is it I am to sign?' she asked quietly. "'I have no time to explain,' he answered. "'The dog-cart is at the door, and I must go directly. "'Besides, if I had time, you wouldn't understand. "'It is a purely formal document, "'full of legal technicalities and all that sort of thing. "'Oh, come, come, sign your name, "'and let us have done as soon as possible.' "'I ought surely to know what I am signing, Sir Percival.' before I write my name? Nonsense! What have women to do with business? I tell you again, you can't understand it. At any rate, let me try to understand it. Whenever Mr. Gilmore had any business for me to do, he always explained it first, and I always understood him. I dare say he did. He was your servant and was obliged to explain, I am your husband, and am not obliged. How much longer do you mean to keep me here? I tell you again, there is no time for reading anything. The dog-cart is waiting at the door. Once for all, will you sign, or will you not? She still had the pen in her hand, but she made no approach to signing her name with it. "'If my signature pledges me to anything,' she said, "'surely I have some claim to know what that pledge is.' He lifted up the parchment and struck it angrily on the table. "'Speak up,' he said. "'You are always famous for telling the truth. "'Never mind, Miss Halcombe, never mind, Bosco. "'Say, in plain terms, you distrust me.' The Count took one of his hands out of his belt, and laid it on Sir Percival's shoulder. Sir Percival shook it off irritably. The Count put it on again, with unruffled composure. "'Control your unfortunate temper, Percival,' he said. "'Lady Glyde is right.' "'Right!' cried Sir Percival. "'A wife right in distrusting her husband.' "'It is unjust and cruel to accuse me of distrusting you,' said Laura. "'Ask Marion if I am not justified in wanting to know what this writing requires of me before I sign it.' "'I won't have any appeals 
"'Made to Miss Halcombe,' retorted Sir Percival. "'Miss Halcombe has nothing to do with the matter.' I had not spoken hitherto, and I would much rather not have spoken now. But the expression of distress in Laura's face when she turned it towards me, and the insolent injustice of her husband's conduct, left me no other alternative than to give my opinion for her sake as soon as I was asked for it. "'Excuse me, Sir Percival,' I said, "'but as one of the witnesses to the signature, "'I venture to think that I have something to do with the matter. "'Laura's objection seems to me a perfectly fair one, "'and speaking for myself only,' I cannot assume the responsibility of witnessing her signature, unless she first understands what the writing is which you wish her to sign. A cold declaration upon my soul, cried Sir Percival. The next time you invite yourself to a man's house, Miss Halcombe, I recommend you not to repay his hospitality by taking his wife's side against him in a matter that doesn't concern you. I started to my feet, as suddenly as if he had struck me. If I had been a man, I would have knocked him down on the threshold of his own door, and have left his house, never on any earthly consideration to enter it again. But I was only a woman, and I loved his wife so dearly. Thank God, that faithful love helped me and I sat down again without saying a word. She knew what I had suffered, and what I had suppressed. She ran round to me, with the tears streaming from her eyes. Oh, Marion, she whispered softly, if my mother had been alive, she could have done no more for me. Come back and sign, cried Sir Percival, from the other side of the table. Shall I? she asked in my ear. I will, if you tell me. No, I answered. The right and the truth are with you. Sign nothing, unless you have read it first. Come back and sign, he reiterated, in his loudest and angriest tones. The Count, who had watched Laura and me, with a close and silent attention, interposed for the second time. Percival, he said, I remember that I am in the presence of ladies. Be good enough, if you please, to remember it too. Sir Percival turned on him, speechless with passion, the Count's firm hand slowly tightened its grasp on his shoulder, and the Count's steady voice quietly repeated, Be good enough, if you please, to remember it too. They both looked at each other. Sir Percival slowly drew his shoulder from under the Count's hand, slowly turned his face away from the Count's eyes, doggedly looked down for a little while at the parchment on the table, and then spoke 
with the sullen submission of a tamed animal, rather than the becoming resignation of a convinced man. I don't want to offend anybody, he said, but my wife's obstinacy is enough to try the patience of a saint. I have told her this is merely a formal document, and what more can she want? You may say what you please, but it is no part of a woman's duty to set her husband at defiance. Once more, Lady Glyde, and for the last time, will you sign or will you not? Laura returned to his side of the table, and took up the pen again. I will sign with pleasure, she said, if you will only treat me as a responsible being. I care little what sacrifice is required of me, if it will affect no one else, and lead to no ill results. Who talked of a sacrifice being required of you? He broke in with a half-suppressed return of his former violence. I only meant, she resumed, that I would refuse no concession which I could honourably make. If I have a scruple about signing my name to an engagement of which I know nothing, why should you visit it on me so severely? It is rather hard, I think, to treat Count Fosco's scruples so much more indulgently than you have treated mine. This unfortunate yet most natural reference to the Count's extraordinary power over her husband, indirect as it was, it sets a possible smouldering temper on fire again in an instant. Scruples! he repeated. Your scruples! <laughs> It is rather late in the day for you to be scrupulous. I should have thought you had got over all weakness of that sort when you made a virtue of necessity by marrying me. The instant he spoke those words, Laura threw down the pen, looked at him with an expression in her eyes which, throughout all my experience of her, I had never seen in them before, and turned her back on him in dead silence. This strong expression of the most open and the most bitter contempt was so entirely unlike herself, so utterly out of her character, that it silenced us all. There was something hidden beyond a doubt under the mere surface brutality of the words which her husband had just addressed to her. There was some lurking insult beneath them, of which I was wholly ignorant, but which had left the mark of its profanation so plainly on her face that even a stranger might have seen it. The Count, who was no stranger, saw it as distinctly as I did. When I left my chair to join Laura, I heard him whisper under his breath to Sir Percival, You idiot! Laura walked before me to the door as I advanced, and, at the same time, her husband spoke to her once more. "'You positively refuse, then, to give me your signature,' he said, in the altered tone of a man who was conscious that he had let his own license of language 
seriously injure him. After what you have just said to me, she replied firmly, I refuse my signature until I have read every line in that parchment from the first word to the last. Come away, Marion. We have remained here long enough. One moment, interposed the Count, before Sir Percival could speak again. One moment, Lady Glyde, I implore you. Laura would have left the room without noticing him, but I stopped her. Don't make an enemy of the Count, I whispered. Whatever you do, don't make an enemy of the Count. She yielded to me. I closed the door again, and we stood near it, waiting. Sir Percival sat down at the table, with his elbow on the folded parchment, and his head resting on his clenched fist. The Count stood between us. Master of the dreadful position in which we were placed, as he was master of everything else. Lady Glyde, he said, with a gentleness which seemed to address itself to our forlorn situation instead of to ourselves. Pray pardon me if I venture to offer one suggestion, and pray believe that I speak out of my profound respect and my friendly regard for the mistress of this house. He turned sharply towards Sir Percival. Is it absolutely necessary, he asked, that this thing here under your elbow should be signed today? It is necessary to my plans and wishes, returned the other sulkily, but that consideration, as you may have noticed, has no influence with Lady Glyde. Answer my plain question plainly. Can the business of the signature be put off till tomorrow? Yes or no? Yes, if you will have it so. Then what are you wasting your time for here? Let the signature wait till tomorrow. Let it wait till you come back. Sir Percival looked up with a frown and an oath. "'You are taking a tone with me that I don't like,' he said. "'A tone I won't bear from any man.' "'I am advising you for your good,' returned the Count, with a smile of quiet contempt. "'Give yourself time. Give Lady Glyde time. "'Have you forgotten?' that your dog-cart is waiting at the door. Oh, my tone surprises you. Ha! Huh? I dare say it does. It is the tone of a man who can keep his temper. How many doses of good advice have I given you in my time? More than you can count. Have I ever been wrong? I defy you to quote me an instance of it. Go. Take your drive. The matter of the signature can wait till tomorrow. Let it wait, and renew it when you come back. Sir Percival hesitated and looked at his watch. 
his anxiety about the secret journey which he was to take that day, revived by the Count's words, was now evidently disputing possession of his mind with his anxiety to obtain Laura's signature. He considered for a little while, and then got up from his chair. "'It is easy to argue me down,' he said, "'when I have no time to answer you. "'I will take your advice, Bosco, "'not because I want it or believe in it, "'but because I can't stop here any longer.' "'He paused and looked round darkly at his wife. "'If you don't give me a signature when I come back tomorrow. "'The rest was lost in the noise of his opening the bookcase cupboard again "'and locking up the parchment once more.' He took his hat and gloves off the table and made for the door. Laura and I drew back to let him pass. Remember tomorrow, he said to his wife, and went out. We waited to give him time to cross the hall and drive away. The Count approached us while we were standing near the door. You have just seen Percival at his worst, Miss Halcombe, he said. As his old friend, I am sorry for him and ashamed of him. As his old friend, I promise you that he shall not break out tomorrow in the same disgraceful manner in which he has broken out today. Laura had taken my arm while he was speaking, and she pressed it significantly when he had done. It would have been a hard trial to any woman to stand by and see the office of apologist for her husband's misconduct quietly assumed by his male friend in her own house, and it was a trial to her. I thanked the Count civilly and let her out. Yes, I thanked him, for I felt already, with a sense of inexpressible helplessness and humiliation, that it was either his interest or his caprice, to make sure of my continuing to reside at Blackwater Park. And I knew, after Sir Percival's conduct to me, that without the support of the Count's influence, I could not hope to remain there. His influence, the influence of all others that I dreaded most, was actually the one tie which now held me to Laura in the hour of her utmost need. We heard the wheels of the dog-cart crashing on the gravel of the drive as we came into the hall. Sir Percival had started on his journey. "'Where is he going to, Marion?' Laura whispered. "'Every fresh thing he does seems to terrify me about the future. Have you any suspicions?' After what she had undergone that morning, I was unwilling to tell her my suspicions. How should I know his secrets? I said evasively. I wonder if the housekeeper knows, she persisted. Certainly not, I replied. She must be quite as ignorant as we are. Laura shook her head doubtfully. Did you not hear from the housekeeper? that there was a report of Anne Catherick having been seen in this neighbourhood. Don't you think he may have gone away to look for her? I would rather compose myself, Laura, by not thinking about it at all. 
and after what has happened you had better follow my example. Come into my room, and rest and quiet yourself a little. We sat down together close to the window, and let the fragrant summer air breathe over our faces. I am ashamed to look at you, Marion, she said, after what you submitted to downstairs for my sake. Oh, my own love, I am almost heartbroken when I think of it, but I will try to make it up to you. I will indeed. Hush, hush, I replied. Don't talk so. What is the trifling mortification of my pride compared to the dreadful sacrifice of your happiness? You heard what he said to me, she went on quickly and vehemently. You heard the words, but you don't know what they meant. You don't know why I threw down the pen and turned my back on him. She rose in sudden agitation and walked about the room. I have kept many things from your knowledge, Marian, for fear of distressing you and making you unhappy at the outset of our new lives. You don't know how he has used me, and yet you ought to know, for you saw how he used me to-day. You heard him sneer at my presuming to be scrupulous. You heard him say I had made a virtue of necessity in marrying him. She sat down again, her face flushed deeply, and her hands twisted and twisted together in her lap. I can't tell you about it now, she said. I shall burst out crying if I tell you now. Later, Marian, when I am more sure of myself. My poor head aches, darling, aches, aches, aches. Where is your smelling bottle? Let me talk to you about yourself. I wish I had given him my signature for your sake. Shall I give it to him tomorrow? I would rather compromise myself than compromise you. After your taking my part against him, he will lay all the blame on you if I refuse again. Oh, what shall we do? Oh, for a friend to help us and advise us, a friend we could really trust. She sighed bitterly. I saw in her face that she was thinking of Hartwright. Saw it the more plainly, because her last word set me thinking of him too. In six months only from her marriage, we wanted the faithful service he had offered to us in his farewell words. How little I once thought that we should ever want it at all. We must do what we can to help ourselves, I said. Let us try to talk it over calmly, Laura. Let us do all in our power to decide for the best. Putting what she knew of her husband's embarrassments, and what I had heard of his conversation with the lawyer together, we arrived, necessarily, at the conclusion that the parchment in the library had been drawn up for the purpose of borrowing money, and that Laura's signature was absolutely necessary to fit it for the attainment of Sir Percival's object. The second question concerning the nature of the legal contract by which the money was to be obtained, and the degree of personal responsibility to which Laura might subject herself if she signed it in the dark, involved considerations which lay far beyond any knowledge and experience that either of us possessed. My own convictions led me to believe 
that the hidden contents of the parchment concealed a transaction of the meanest and the most fraudulent kind. I had not formed this conclusion in consequence of Sir Percival's refusal to show the writing, or to explain it, for that refusal might well have proceeded from his obstinate disposition and his domineering temper alone. My sole motive for distrusting his honesty sprang from the change which I had observed in his language and his manners at Blackwater Park, a change which convinced me that he had been acting a part throughout the whole period of his probation at Limeridge House. His elaborate delicacy, his ceremonious politeness, which harmonized so agreeably with Mr. Gilmore's old-fashioned notions, his modesty with Laura, his candour with me, his moderation with Mr. Fairley, all these were the artifices of a mean, cunning, and brutal man who had dropped his disguise when his practised duplicity had gained its end, and had openly shown himself in the library on that very day. I say nothing of the grief which this discovery caused me on Laura's account, for it is not to be expressed by any words of mine. I only refer to it at all, because it decided me to oppose her signing the parchment, whatever the consequences might be, unless she was first made acquainted with the contents. Under these circumstances, the one chance for us when tomorrow came was to be provided with an objection to giving the signature, which might rest on sufficiently firm commercial or legal grounds to shake Sir Percival's resolution and to make him suspect that we two women understood the laws and obligations of business as well as himself. After some pondering, I determined to write to the only honest man within reach, whom we could trust to help us discreetly in our forlorn situation. That man was Mr. Gilmore's partner, Mr. Curl, who conducted the business now that our old friend had been obliged to withdraw from it, and to leave London on account of his health. I explained to Laura that I had Mr. Gilmore's own authority for placing implicit confidence in his partner's integrity, discretion, and accurate knowledge of all her affairs, and with her full approval I sat down at once to write the letter I began by stating our position to Mr. Curl exactly as it was, and then asked for his advice in return, expressed in plain, downright terms, which he could comprehend without any danger of misinterpretations and mistakes. My letter was as short as I could possibly make it, and was, I hope, unencumbered by needless apologies and needless details. Just as I was about to put the address on the envelope, an obstacle was discovered by Laura, which, in the effort and preoccupation of writing, had escaped my mind altogether. "'How are we to get the answer in time?' she asked. "'Your letter will not be delivered in London before tomorrow morning. 
and the post will not bring the reply here till the morning after. The only way of overcoming this difficulty was to have the answer brought to us from the lawyer's office by a special messenger. I wrote a postscript to that effect, begging that the messenger might be dispatched with the reply by the eleven o'clock morning train, which would bring him to our station at twenty minutes past one, and so enable him to reach Blackwater Park by two o'clock at the latest. He was to be directed to ask for me, to answer no questions addressed to him by anyone else, and to deliver his letter into no hands but mine. In case Sir Percival should come back tomorrow before two o'clock, I said to Laura, the wisest plan for you to adopt is to be out in the grounds all the morning with your book or your work and not to appear at the house till the messenger has had time to arrive with the letter. I will wait here for him all the morning to guard against any misadventures or mistakes. By following this arrangement, I hope and believe we shall avoid being taken by surprise. Let us go down to the drawing-room now. We may excite suspicion if we remain shut up together too long. Suspicion? she repeated. Whose suspicion can we excite, now that Sir Percival has left the house? Do you mean Count Fosco? Perhaps I do, Laura. You are beginning to dislike him as much as I do, Marian. No, not to dislike him. Dislike is always more or less associated with contempt. I can see nothing in the Count to despise. You are not afraid of him, are you? Perhaps I am. A little. Afraid of him? After his interference in our favour today? Yes. I am more afraid of his interference than I am of Sir Percival's violence. Remember what I said to you in the library. Whatever you do, Lord, don't make an enemy of the Count. We went downstairs. Laura entered the drawing-room while I proceeded across the hall, with my letter in my hand, to put it into the post-bag which hung against the wall opposite to me. The house-door was open, and as I crossed past it, I saw Count Fosco and his wife standing talking together on the steps outside, with their faces turned towards me. The countess came into the hall rather hastily, and asked if I had leisure enough for five minutes' private conversation. Feeling a little surprised by such an appeal from such a person, I put my letter into the bag, and replied that I was quite at her disposal. She took my arm with unaccustomed friendliness and familiarity, and instead of leading me into an empty room, drew me out with her to the belt of turf which surrounded the large fish-pond. As we passed the Count on the steps, he bowed and smiled, and then went at once into the house, pushing the hall-door to after him, but not actually closing it. The Countess walked me gently round the fish-pond, 
I expected to be made the depository of some extraordinary confidence, and I was astonished to find that Madame Fosco's communication for my private ear was nothing more than a polite assurance of her sympathy for me after what had happened in the library. Her husband had told her of all that had passed, and of the insolent manner in which Sir Percival had spoken to me. This information had so shocked and distressed her, on my account, and on Laura's, that she had made up her mind, if anything of the sort happened again, to mark her sense of Sir Percival's outrageous conduct by leaving the house. The Count had approved of her idea, and she now hoped that I approved of it too. I thought this a very strange proceeding on the part of such a remarkably reserved woman as Madame Fosco, especially after the interchange of sharp speeches which had passed between us during the conversation in the boathouse on that very morning. However, it was my plain duty to meet a polite and friendly advance on the part of one of my elders with a polite and friendly reply. I answered the countess accordingly in her own tone, and then, thinking we had said all that was necessary on either side, made an attempt to get back to the house. But Madame Fosco seemed resolved not to part with me, and to my unspeakable amazement resolved also to talk, Hitherto, the most silent of women, she now persecuted me with fluent conventionalities on the subject of married life, on the subject of Sir Percival and Laura, on the subject of her own happiness, on the subject of the late Mr. Fairley's conduct to her in the matter of her legacy, and on half a dozen other subjects besides until she had detained me walking round and round the fish-pond for more than half an hour, and had quite wearied me out. Whether she discovered this or not I cannot say, but she stopped as abruptly as she had begun, looked towards the house-door, resumed her icy manner in a moment, and dropped my arm of her own accord, before I could think of an excuse for accomplishing my own release from her. As I pushed open the door and entered the hall, I found myself suddenly face to face with the Count again. He was just putting a letter into the post-bag. After he had dropped it in, and had closed the bag, he asked me where I had left Madame Fosco. I told him, and he went out at the hall door immediately to join his wife. His manner when he spoke to me was so unusually quiet and subdued that I turned and looked after him, wondering if he were ill or out of spirits. Why my next proceeding was to go straight up to the post-bag and take out my own letter and look at it again with a vague distrust on me, and why the looking at it for the second time instantly suggested the idea to my mind 
of sealing the envelope for its greater security. Are mysteries which are either too deep or too shallow for me to fathom. Women, as everybody knows, constantly act on impulses which they cannot explain even to themselves, and I can only suppose that one of those impulses was the hidden cause of my unaccountable conduct on this occasion. Whatever influence animated me, I found cause to congratulate myself on having obeyed it as soon as I prepared to seal the letter in my own room. I had originally closed the envelope in the usual way by moistening the adhesive point and pressing it on the paper beneath, and when I now tried it with my finger, after a lapse of full three-quarters of an hour, the envelope opened on the instant, without sticking or tearing. Perhaps I had fastened it insufficiently. Perhaps there might have been some defect in the adhesive gum. Or perhaps... No, it is quite revolting enough to feel that third conjecture stirring in my mind. I would rather not see it confronting me in plain black and white. I almost dread to-morrow. So much depends on my discretion and self-control. There are two precautions at all events, which I am sure not to forget. I must be careful to keep up friendly appearances with the Count, and I must be well on my guard when the messenger from the office comes here with the answer to my letter. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. 5. June 17th. When the dinner hour brought us together again, Count Bosco was in his usual excellent spirits. He exerted himself to interest and amuse us as if he was determined to efface from our memories all recollection of what had passed in the library that afternoon. Lively descriptions of his adventures in travelling, amusing anecdotes of remarkable people whom he had met with abroad, quaint comparisons between the social customs of various nations, illustrated by examples drawn from men and women indiscriminately all over Europe, humorous confessions of the innocent follies of his own early life, when he ruled the fashions of a second-rate Italian town, and wrote preposterous romances on the French model for a second-rate Italian newspaper. All flowed in succession so easily and so gaily from his lips, and all addressed our various curiosities and various interests, so directly and so delicately, that Laura and I listened to him with as much attention and inconsistent as it may seem, with as much admiration also, as Madame Fosco herself. Women can resist a man's love 
a man's fame, a man's personal appearance, and a man's money. But they cannot resist a man's tongue when he knows how to talk to them. After dinner, while the favourable impression which he had produced on us was still vivid in our minds, the Count modestly withdrew to read in the library. Laura proposed a stroll in the grounds to enjoy the close of the long evening. It was necessary in common politeness to ask Madame Fosco to join us, but this time she had apparently received her orders beforehand, and she begged we would kindly excuse her. The Count will probably want a fresh supply of cigarettes, she remarked by way of apology, and nobody can make them to his satisfaction but myself. Her cold blue eyes almost warmed as she spoke the words. She looked actually proud of being the officiating medium through which her lord and master composed himself with tobacco smoke. Laura and I went out together alone. It was a misty, heavy evening. There was a sense of blight in the air. The flowers were drooping in the garden, and the ground was parched and dewless. The western heaven, as we saw it over the quiet trees, was of a pale yellow hue, and the sun was setting faintly in a haze. Coming rain seemed near. It would fall probably with the fall of night. Which way shall we go? I asked. "'Towards the lake, Marion, if you like,' she answered. "'You seem unaccountably fond, Laura, of that dismal lake.' "'No, not of the lake, but of the scenery about it. "'The sand and heath and the fir-trees "'are the only objects I can discover in all this large place "'to remind me of Limeridge. "'But we will walk in some other direction, if you prefer it. I have no favourite walks at Blackwater Park, my love. One is the same as another to me. Let us go to the lake. We may find it cooler in the open space than we find it here. We walked through the shadowy plantation in silence. The heaviness in the evening air oppressed us both, and when we reached the boathouse we were glad to sit down and rest inside. A white fog hung low over the lake. The dense brown line of the trees on the opposite bank appeared above it, like a dwarf forest floating in the sky. The sandy ground shelving downward from where we sat was lost mysteriously in the outward layers of the fog. The silence was horrible. No rustling of the leaves, no bird's note in the wood, no cry of waterfowl from the pools of the hidden lake. Even the croaking of the frogs had ceased to-night. "'It is very desolate and gloomy,' said Laura. "'But we can be more alone here than anywhere else.' She spoke quietly, and looked at the wilderness of sand and mist with steady, thoughtful eyes. I could see that her mind was too much occupied to feel the dreary impressions from without. 
which had fastened themselves already on mine. I promised, Marian, to tell you the truth about my married life, instead of leaving you any longer to guess it for yourself, she began. That secret is the first I have ever had from you, love, and I am determined it shall be the last. I was silent, as you know, for your sake, and perhaps a little for my own sake as well. It is very hard for a woman to confess that the man to whom she has given her whole life is the man of all others who cares least for the gift. If you are married yourself, Marian, and especially if you are happily married, you would feel for me as no single woman can feel, however kind and true she may be. What answer could I make? I could only take her hand and look at her with my whole heart, as well as my eyes would let me. How often, she went on, I have heard you laughing over what you used to call your poverty. How often you have made me mock speeches of congratulation on my wealth. Oh, Marian, never laugh again. Thank God for your poverty. It has made you your own mistress, and has saved you from the lot that has fallen on me. A sad beginning on the lips of a young wife, sad in its quiet, plain-spoken truth. The few days we had all passed together at Blackwater Park had been many enough to show me, to show any one, what her husband had married her for. You shall not be distressed, she said, by hearing how soon my disappointments and my trials began, or even by knowing what they were. It is bad enough to have them on my memory. If I tell you how he received the first and last attempt at remonstrance that I ever made, you will know how he has always treated me, as well as if I had described it in so many words. It was uh, one day at Rome, when we had ridden out together to the tomb of Cecilia Metella. The sky was calm and lovely, and the grand old ruin looked beautiful, and the remembrance that a husband's love had raised it in the old time to a wife's memory made me feel more tenderly and more anxiously towards my husband than I had ever felt yet. "'Would you build such a tomb for me, Percival?' I asked him. "'You said you loved me dearly before we were married, and yet since that time.' I could get no farther, Marian. He was not even looking at me. I pulled down my veil, thinking it best not to let him see that the tears were in my eyes. I fancied he had not paid any attention to me, but he had. He said, Come away, and laughed to himself as he helped me on to my horse. He mounted his own horse, and laughed again as we rode away. If I do build you a tomb, he said, it will be done with your own money. I wonder whether Cecilia Metella had a fortune and paid for hers. I made no reply. How could I, when I was crying behind my veil? Ah! You light-complexioned women are all sulky, 
he said. What do you want? Compliments and soft speeches? Well, I'm in a good humour this morning. Consider the compliments paid and the speeches said. Men little know when they say hard things to us how well we remember them and how much harm they do us. It would have been better for me if I'd gone on crying. But his contempt dried up my tears and hardened my heart. From that time, Marion, I never checked myself again in thinking of Walter Hartwright. I let the memory of those happy days, when we were so fond of each other in secret, come back and comfort me. What else had I to look to for consolation? If we had been together, you would have helped me to better things. I know it was wrong, darling, but tell me if I was wrong without any excuse. I was obliged to turn my face from her. Don't ask me, I said. Have I suffered as you have suffered? What right have I to decide? I used to think of him, she pursued, dropping her voice and moving closer to me. I used to think of him when Percival left me alone at night to go among the opera people. I used to fancy what I might have been if it had pleased God to bless me with poverty, and if I had been his wife. I used to see myself in my neat cheap gown, sitting at home and waiting for him while he was earning our bread, sitting at home and working for him and loving him all the better because I had to work for him seeing him come in tired and taking off his hat and coat for him and marion pleasing him with little dishes at dinner that i had learnt to make for his sake oh i hope he is never lonely enough and sad enough to think of me and see me as i have thought of him and see him as she said those melancholy words all the lost tenderness returned to her voice and all the lost beauty trembled back into her face. Her eyes rested as lovingly on the blighted, solitary, ill-omened view before us, as if they saw the friendly hills of Cumberland in the dim and threatening sky. "'Don't speak of Walter any more,' I said, as soon as I could control myself. "'Oh, Laura, spare us both the wretchedness of talking of him now.' She roused herself and looked at me tenderly. "'I would rather be silent about him for ever,' she answered, "'than cause you a moment's pain.' "'It is in your interests,' I pleaded. "'It is for your sake that I speak. "'If your husband heard you—' "'It would not surprise him if he did hear me.' She made that strange reply with a weary calmness and coldness. The change in her manner when she gave the answer startled me almost as much as the answer itself. Not surprise him, I repeated. Laura, remember what you are saying. You frighten me. It is true, she said. It is what I wanted to tell you today, when we were talking in your room. My only secret when I opened my heart to him at Limeridge was a harmless secret, Marian. You said so yourself. The name was all I kept from him, and he has discovered it. I heard her, but I could say nothing. Her last words had killed the little hope that still lived in me. It happened at Rome, she went on, 
as wearily calm and cold as ever. We were at a little party given to the English by some friends of Sir Percival's, Mr. and Mrs. Markland. Mrs. Markland had the reputation of sketching very beautifully, and some of the guests prevailed on her to show us her drawings. We all admired them. But something I said attracted her attention particularly to me. Surely you draw yourself, she asked. I used to draw a little once, I answered, but I have given it up. If you have once drawn, she said, you may take to it again one of these days, and if you do, I wish you would let me recommend you a master. I said nothing, you know why, Marian, and tried to change the conversation. But Mrs. Markland persisted. I have had all sorts of teachers, she went on, but the best of all, the most intelligent and the most attentive, was a Mr. Hartwright. If you ever take up your drawing again, do try him as a master. He is a young man, modest and gentlemanlike. I am sure you will like him. Think of those words being spoken to me publicly in the presence of strangers, strangers who had been invited to meet the bride and bridegroom. I did all I could to control myself. I said nothing, and looked down close at the drawings. When I ventured to raise my head again, my eyes and my husband's eyes met, and I knew by his look that my face had betrayed me. "'We will see about Mr. Hartwright,' he said, looking at me all the time, when we get back to England. "'I agree with you, Mrs. Markland. I think Lady Glyde is sure to like him.' He laid an emphasis on the last words, which made my cheeks burn and set my heart beating as if it would stifle me. Nothing more was said. We came away early. He was silent in the carriage driving back to the hotel. He helped me out and followed me upstairs as usual. But the moment we were in the drawing-room, he locked the door, pushed me down into a chair, and stood over me with his hands on my shoulders. Ever since that morning, when you made your audacious confession to me at the marriage, he said, I have wanted to find out the man, and I found him in your face to-night. Your drawing-master was the man, and his name is Hartwright. You shall repent it, and he shall repent it, to the last hour of your lives. Now go to bed, and dream of him, if you like, with the marks of my horsewhip on his shoulders. Whenever he is angry with me now, he refers to what I acknowledge to him in your presence, with a sneer or a threat. I have no power to prevent him from putting his own horrible construction on the confidence I placed in him. I have no influence to make him believe me, or to keep him silent. You looked surprised to-day, when you heard him tell me that I had made a virtue of necessity in marrying him. You will not be surprised again when you hear him repeat it, the next time he is out of temper. Oh, Marion, don't, don't you hurt me. I had caught her in my arms, and the sting and torment of my remorse had closed them round her like a vice. Yes, my remorse, the white despair of Walter's face, when my cruel word struck him to the heart in the summer-house at Limeridge, 
rose before me in mute unendurable reproach my hand had pointed the way which led the man my sister loved step by step far from his country and his friends between those two young hearts i had stood to sunder them for ever the one from the other and his life and her life lay wasted before me alike in witness of the deed i had done this and done it for sir percival glide for sir percival glide i heard her speaking and i knew by the tone of her voice that she was comforting me i who deserved nothing but the reproach of her silence how long it was before i mastered the absorbing misery of my own thoughts i cannot tell i was first conscious that she was kissing me and then my eyes seemed to wake on a sudden to their sense of outward things and i knew that i was looking mechanically straight before me at the prospect of the lake it is late i heard her whisper it will be dark in the plantation she shook my arm and repeated marion it will be dark in the plantation give me a minute longer i said a minute to get better in i was afraid to trust myself to look at her yet and i kept my eyes fixed on the view it was late the dense brown line of trees in the sky had faded in the gathering darkness to the faint resemblance of a long wreath of smoke the mist over the lake below had stealthily enlarged and advanced on us the silence was as breathless as ever but the horror of it had gone and the solemn mystery of its stillness was all that remained we are far from the house she whispered let us go back she stopped suddenly and turned her face from me towards the entrance of the boathouse marion she said trembling violently do you see nothing look where down there below us she pointed my eyes followed her hand and i saw it too a living figure was moving over the waste of heath in the distance it crossed our range of view from the boathouse and passed darkly along the outer edge of the mist it stopped far off in front of us waited and passed on moving slowly with the white cloud of mist behind it and above it slowly slowly till it glided by the edge of the boathouse and we saw it no more we were both unnerved by what had passed between us that evening some minutes elapsed before laura would venture into the plantation and before i could make up my mind to lead her back to the house was it a man or a woman she asked in a whisper as we moved at last into the dark dampness of the outer air i am not certain which do you think it looked like a woman i was afraid it was a man in a long cloak it may be a man in this dim light it is not possible to be certain wait marion i am frightened i don't see the path suppose the figure should follow us not at all likely laura there is really nothing to be alarmed about the shores of the lake are not far from the village and they are free to any one to walk on by day or night it is only wonderful we have seen no living creature there before we were now in the plantation it was very dark so dark that we found some difficulty in keeping the path i gave laura my arm and we walked as fast as we could on our way back before we were half-way through she stopped 
and forced me to stop with her. She was listening. Hush, she whispered, I hear something behind us. Dead leaves, I said to cheer her, or a twig blown off the trees. It is summer-time, Marion, and there is not a breath of wind to listen. I heard the sound, too, a sound like a light footstep following us. No matter who it is or what it is, I said, let us walk on. In another minute, if there is anything to alarm us, we shall be near enough to the house to be heard. We went on quickly, so quickly that Laura was breathless by the time we were nearly through the plantation and within sight of the lighted windows. I waited a moment to give her breathing time. Just as we were about to proceed, she stopped me again and signed to me with her hand to listen once more. We both heard distinctly a long, heavy sigh behind us in the black depths of the trees. "'Who's there?' I called out. There was no answer. "'Who's there?' I repeated. An instant of silence followed, and then we heard the light fall of the footsteps again, fainter and fainter, sinking away into the darkness, sinking, 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 till they were lost in the silence. We hurried out from the trees to the open lawn beyond, crossed it rapidly, and without another word passing between us reached the house. In the light of the hall lamp, Laura looked at me with white cheeks and startled eyes. I am half dead with fear, she said. Who could it have been? We will try to guess tomorrow, I replied. In the meantime, say nothing to anyone of what we have heard and seen. Why not? because silence is safe, and we have need of safety in this house. I sent Laura upstairs immediately, waited a minute to take off my hat and put my hair smooth, and then went at once to make my first investigations in the library, on pretense of searching for a book. There sat the Count, filling out the largest easy chair in the house, smoking and reading calmly, with his feet on an ottoman, his cravat across his knees, and his shirt-collar wide open. And there sat Madame Fosco, like a quiet child, on a stool by his side, making cigarettes. Neither husband nor wife could, by any possibility, have been out late that evening, and have just got back to the house in a hurry. I felt that my object in visiting the library was answered, the moment I set eyes on them. Count Fosco rose in polite confusion, and tied his cravat on when I entered the room. "'Pray, don't let me disturb you,' I said. "'I have only come here to get a book.' "'All unfortunate men of my size suffer from the heat,' said the Count, refreshing himself gravely with a large green fan." I wish I could change places with my excellent wife. She is as cool at this moment as a fish in the pool outside. The countess allowed herself to thaw under the influence of her husband's quaint comparison. I am never warm, Miss Halcombe, she remarked, with the modest air of a woman who was confessing to one of her own merits. Have you and Lady Glyde been out this evening? asked the Count, 
while I was taking a book from the shelves to preserve appearances. Yes, we went out to get a little air. May I ask in what direction? In the direction of the lake, as far as the boathouse. Uh-huh, as far as the boathouse. Under other circumstances, I might have resented his curiosity, but to-night I held it as another proof that neither he nor his wife were connected with the mysterious appearance of the lake. No more adventures, I suppose, this evening, he went on. No more discoveries, like your discovery of the wounded dog. He fixed his unfathomable grey eyes on me, with that cold, clear, irresistible glitter in them, which always forces me to look at him, and always makes me uneasy while I do look. An unutterable suspicion that his mind is prying into mine overcomes me at these times, and it overcame me now. No, I said shortly, no adventures, no discoveries. I tried to look away from him and leave the room. Strange as it seems, I hardly think I should have succeeded in the attempt, if Madame Bosco had not helped me by causing him to move and look away first. Count, you are keeping Miss Harkham standing, she said. The moment he turned round to get me a chair, I seized my opportunity, thanked him, made my excuses, and slipped out. An hour later, when Laura's maid happened to be in her mistress's room, I took occasion to refer to the closeness of the night, with a view to ascertaining next how the servants had been passing their time. "'Have you been suffering much from the heat downstairs?' I asked. "'No, miss,' said the girl. "'We have not felt it to speak of. "'You have been out in the woods, then, I suppose?' Some of us thought of going, miss, but Cook said she would take her chair into the cool courtyard outside the kitchen door, and on second thoughts all the rest of us took our chairs out there too. The housekeeper was now the only person who remained to be accounted for. Is Mrs. Mitchelson gone to bed yet? I inquired. I should think not, miss, said the girl, smiling. Mrs. Mitchelson is more likely to be getting up just now than going to bed. Why, what do you mean? Has Mrs. Mitchelson been taking to her bed in the daytime? No, miss, not exactly, but the next thing to it. She's been asleep all the evening on the sofa in her own room. Putting together what I observed for myself in the library, and what I have just heard from Laura's maid, one conclusion seems inevitable. The figure we saw at the lake, was not the figure of Madame Fosco, of her husband, or of any of the servants. The footsteps we heard behind us were not the footsteps of any one belonging to the house. Who could it have been? It seems useless to inquire. I cannot even decide whether the figure was a man's or a woman's. I can only say that I think it was a woman's. End of chapter 15Chapter Sixteen of *The Woman in White* by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Six. 
June 18th. The misery of self-reproach which I suffered yesterday evening on hearing what Laura told me in the boathouse returned in the loneliness of the night and kept me waking and wretched for hours. I lighted my candle at last and searched through my old journals to see what my share in the fatal error of her marriage had really been and what I might have once done to save her from it. The result soothed me a little, for it showed that however blindly and ignorantly I acted, I acted for the best. Crying generally does me harm, but it was not so last night. I think it relieved me. I rose this morning with a settled resolution and a quiet mind. Nothing Sir Percival can say or do shall ever irritate me again, or make me forget for one moment that I am staying here in defiance of mortifications, insults, and threats, for Laura's service and for Laura's sake. The speculations in which we might have indulged this morning on the subject of the figure at the lake and the footsteps in the plantation have been all suspended by a trifling accident which has caused Laura great regret. She has lost the little brooch I gave her for a keepsake, on the day before her marriage. As she wore it when we went out yesterday evening, we can only suppose that it must have dropped from her dress, either in the boathouse or on our way back. The servants have been sent to search, and have returned unsuccessful. And now Laura herself has gone to look for it. Whether she finds it or not, the loss will help to excuse her absence from the house if Sir Percival returns before the letter from Mr. Gilmore's partner is placed in my hands. One o'clock has just struck. I am considering whether I had better wait here for the arrival of the messenger from London, or slip away quietly and watch for him outside the lodge gate. My suspicion of everybody and everything in this house inclines me to think that the second plan may be the best. The Count is safe in the breakfast-room, I heard him, through the door, as I ran upstairs ten minutes since, exercising his canary-birds at their tricks. Come out on my little finger, my pretty pretty pretties. Come and hop upstairs, one, two, three, and up, three, two, one, and down, one, two, three, twit, 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 twit. The birds burst into their usual ecstasy of singing, and the Count chirruped and whistled at them in return, as if he was a bird himself. My room door is open, and I can hear the shrill singing and whistling at this very moment. If I am really to step out without being observed, now is the time. Four o'clock. The three hours that have passed since I made my last entry have turned the whole march of events at Blackwater Park in a new direction. Whether for good or for evil, I cannot and dare not decide. Let me get back first to the place at which I left off, or I shall lose myself in the confusion of my own thoughts. I went out, as I had proposed, to meet the messenger with my letter from London at the lodge-gate. On the stairs I saw no one. In the hall I heard the Count still exercising his birds, but on crossing the quadrangle outside, I passed Madame Fosco, walking by herself in her favourite circle round and round the great fish-pond. 
I at once slackened my pace, so as to avoid all appearance of being in a hurry, and even went the length, for caution's sake, of inquiring if she thought of going out before lunch. She smiled at me in the friendliest manner, said she preferred remaining near the house, nodded pleasantly, and re-entered the hall. I looked back, and saw that she had closed the door before I had opened the wicket by the side of the carriage-gates. In less than a quarter of an hour I reached the lodge. The lane outside took a sudden turn to the left, ran on straight for a hundred yards or so, and then took another sharp turn to the right to join the high road. Between these two turns, hidden from the lodge on one side, and from the way to the station on the other, I waited, walking backwards and forwards. High hedges were on either side of me, and for twenty minutes by my watch I neither saw nor heard anything. At the end of that time the sound of a carriage caught my ear, and I was met, as I advanced towards the second turning, by a fly from the railway. I made a sign to the driver to stop. As he obeyed me, a respectable-looking man put his head out of the window to see what was the matter. "'I beg your pardon,' I said, "'but am I right in supposing that you are going to Blackwater Park?' "'Yes, ma'am.' "'With a letter for anyone?' "'With a letter for Miss Halcombe, ma'am.' "'You may give me the letter. I am Miss Halcombe.' The man touched his hat, got out of the fly immediately, and gave me the letter. I opened it at once, and read these lines— I copy them here, thinking it best to destroy the original for caution's sake. Dear madam, your letter received this morning has caused me very great anxiety. I will reply to it as briefly and plainly as possible. My careful consideration of the statement made by yourself, and my knowledge of Lady Glyde's position as defined in the settlement, lead me, I regret to say, to the conclusion that a loan of the trust money to Sir Percival or, in other words, a loan of some portion of the twenty thousand pounds of Lady Glyde's fortune is in contemplation, and that she is made a party to the deed in order to secure her approval of a flagrant breach of trust, and to have her signature produced against her if she should complain hereafter. It is impossible on any other supposition to account situated as she is for her execution to a deed of any kind being wanted at all. In the event of Lady Glyde's signing such a document, as I am compelled to suppose the deed in question to be, her trustees would be at liberty to advance money to Sir Percival out of her twenty thousand pounds, if the amount so lent should not be paid back, and if Lady Glyde should have children, their fortune will then be diminished by the sum large or small so advanced. In plainer terms still, the transaction for anything that Lady Glyde knows to the contrary, may be a fraud upon her unborn children. Under these serious circumstances, I would recommend Lady Glyde to assign as a reason for withholding her signature that she wishes the deed to be first submitted to myself as her family solicitor in the absence of my partner, Mr. Gilmore. No reasonable objection can be made to taking this course, for if the transaction is an honourable one, there will necessarily be no difficulty in my giving my approval. Sincerely assuring you of my readiness to afford any additional help or advice that may be wanted, 
I beg to remain, madam, your faithful servant, William Curl. I read this kind and sensible letter very thankfully. It supplied Laura with a reason for objecting to the signature which was unanswerable, and which we could both of us understand. The messenger waited near me while I was reading, to receive his directions when I had done. "'Will you be good enough to say that I understand the letter, and that I am very much obliged?' I said. "'There is no other reply necessary at present.' Exactly at the moment when I was speaking those words, holding the letter open in my hand, Count Fosco turned the corner of the lane from the high road, and stood before me, as if he had sprung up out of the earth. The suddenness of his appearance, in the very last place under heaven, in which I should have expected to see him, took me completely by surprise. The messenger wished me good morning, and got into the fly again. I could not say a word to him. I was not even able to return his bow. The conviction that I was discovered, and by that man of all others, absolutely petrified me. "'Are you going back to the house, Miss Harkham?' he inquired without showing the least surprise on his side, and without even looking after the fly which drove off while he was speaking to me, I collected myself sufficiently to make a sign in the affirmative. "'I am going back too,' he said. "'Pray allow me the pleasure of accompanying you. Will you take my arm? You look surprised at seeing me.' I took his arm. The first of my scattered senses that came back was the sense that warned me to sacrifice anything rather than make an enemy of him. "'You look surprised at seeing me,' he repeated in his quietly pertinacious way. "'I thought, Count, I heard you with your birds in the breakfast-room,' I answered, as quietly and firmly as I could. "'Surely, but my little feathered children, dear lady, are only too like other children.' They have their days of perversity, and this morning was one of them. My wife came in as I was putting them back in their cage, and said she had left you going out alone for a walk. You told her so, did you not? Certainly. Well, Miss Halcombe, the pleasure of accompanying you was too great a temptation for me to resist. At my age there is no harm in confessing so much as that is that. I seized my hat and set off to offer myself as your escort. Even so fat an old man as Fosco is surely better than no escort at all. I took the wrong path. I came back in despair, and here I am arrived, may I say it, at the height of my wishes. He talked on, in this complimentary strain, with a fluency which left me no exertion to make, beyond the effort of maintaining my composure. He never referred in the most distant manner to what he had seen in the lane or to the letter which I still had in my hand. This ominous discretion helped to convince me that he must have surprised by the most dishonourable means the secret of my application in Laura's interest to the lawyer, and that, having now assured himself of the private manner in which I had received the answer, he had discovered enough to suit his purposes, and was only bent on trying to quiet the suspicions which he knew he must have aroused in my mind. I was wise enough under these circumstances 
not to attempt to deceive him by plausible explanations, and, woman enough notwithstanding my dread of him, to feel as if my hand was tainted by resting on his arm. On the drive in front of the house we met the dog-cart, being taken round to the stables. Sir Percival had just returned. He came out to meet us at the house-door. Whatever other results his journey might have had, it had not ended in softening his savage temper. "'Oh, here are two of you come back,' he said, with a lowering face. "'What is the meaning of the house being deserted in this way? Where is Lady Glyde?' I told him of the loss of the brooch, and said that Laura had gone into the plantation to look for it. "'Brooch, or no brooch,' he growled sulkily. "'I recommend her not to forget her appointment in the library this afternoon.' I shall expect to see her in half an hour. I took my hand from the Count's arm, and slowly ascended the steps. He honoured me with one of his magnificent bows, and then addressed himself gaily to the scowling master of the house. Tell me, Percival, he said, have you had a pleasant drive, and has your pretty shining brown molly come back at all tired? Brown molly be hanged! and the drive too i want my lunch and i want five minutes talk with you percival first returned the count five minutes talk my friend here on the grass what about about business that very much concerns you i lingered long enough in passing through the hall door to hear this question answered and to see sir percival thrust his hands into his pockets in sullen hesitation you want to badger me with any more of your infernal scruples, he said. I, for one, won't hear them. I want my lunch. Come out here and speak to me, repeated the Count, still perfectly uninfluenced by the rudest speech that his friend could make to him. Sir Percival descended the steps. The Count took him by the arm and walked him away gently. The business, I was sure, referred to the question of the signature. They were speaking of Laura and of me beyond a doubt. I felt heart-sick and faint with anxiety. It might be of the last importance to both of us to know what they were saying to each other at that moment, and not one word of it could by any possibility reach my ears. I walked about the house, from room to room, with the lawyer's letter in my bosom. I was afraid by this time even to trust it under lock and key, till the oppression of my suspense half-maddened me. There were no signs of Laura's return, and I thought of going out to look for her, but my strength was so exhausted by the trials and anxieties of the morning that the heat of the day quite overpowered me, and after an attempt to get to the door I was obliged to return to the drawing-room and lie down on the nearest sofa to recover. I was just composing myself when the door opened softly, and the Count looked in. "'A thousand pardons, Miss Halcombe,' he said. "'I only venture to disturb you, because I am the bearer of good news. Percival, who is capricious in everything, as you know, has seen fit to alter his mind at the last moment, and the business of the signature is put off for the present a great relief to all of us, Miss Halcombe, as I see with pleasure in your face. Pray present my best respects and felicitations 
when you mention this pleasant change of circumstances to Lady Glyde. He left me before I had recovered my astonishment. There could be no doubt that this extraordinary alteration of purpose in the matter of the signature was due to his influence, and that his discovery of my application to London yesterday, and of my having received an answer to it to-day, had offered him the means of interfering with certain success. I felt these impressions, but my mind seemed to share the exhaustion of my body, and I was in no condition to dwell on them with any useful reference to the doubtful present or the threatening future. I tried a second time to run out and find Laura, but my head was giddy and my knees trembled under me. There was no choice but to give it up again and return to the sofa sorely against my will. The quiet in the house and the low murmuring hum of summer insects outside the open window soothed me. My eyes closed of themselves, and I passed gradually into a strange condition which was not waking, for I knew nothing of what was going on about me and not sleeping, for I was conscious of my own repose. In this state my fevered mind broke loose from me while my weary body was at rest, and in a trance or daydream of my fancy I know not what to call it, I saw Walter Hartwright. I had not thought of him since I rose that morning. Laura had not said one word to me, either directly or indirectly referring to him. And yet I saw him now, as plainly as if the past time had returned, and we were both together again at Limeridge House. He appeared to me as one among many other men, none of whose faces I could plainly discern. They were all lying on the steps of an immense ruined temple, colossal tropical trees, with rank creepers twining endlessly about their trunks, and hideous stone idols glimmering and grinning at intervals behind leaves and stalks and branches, surrounded the temple and shut out the sky, and threw a dismal shadow over the forlorn band of men on the steps. White exhalations twisted and curled up stealthily from the ground, approached the men in wreaths like smoke, touched them and stretched them out dead, one by one, in the places where they lay. An agony of pity and fear for Walter loosened my tongue, and I implored him to escape. "'Come back, come back,' I said. "'Remember your promise to her and to me. "'Come back to us before the pestilence reaches you, "'and lays you dead like the rest.' He looked at me with an unearthly quiet in his face. "'Wait,' he said, "'I shall come back. "'The night when I met the lost woman on the highway "'was the night which set my life apart "'to be the instrument of a design that is yet unseen. "'Here, lost in the wilderness, or there, "'welcome back in the land of my birth, "'I am still walking on the dark road which leads me, "'and you, and the sister of your love and mine, "'to the unknown retribution and the inevitable end. "'Wait and look. "'The pestilence which touches the rest will pass me.' I saw him again. He was still in the forest, and the numbers of his lost companions had dwindled to very few. The temple was gone, 
and the idols were gone, and in their place the figures of dark dwarfish men lurked murderously among the trees, with bows in their hands, and arrows fitted to the string. Once more I feared for Walter, and cried out to warn him. Once more he turned to me, with the immovable quiet in his face. Another step, he said, on the dark road. Wait and look. The arrows that strike the rest will spare me. I saw him for the third time in a wrecked ship, stranded on a wild sandy shore. The overloaded boats were making away from him for the land, and he alone was left to sink with the ship. I cried to him to hail the hindmost boat, and to make a last effort for his life. The quiet face looked at me in return, and the unmoved voice gave me back the changeless reply. Another step on the journey, wait and look, the sea which drowns the rest will spare me. I saw him for the last time. He was kneeling by a tomb of white marble, and the shadow of a veiled woman rose out of the grave beneath and waited by his side. The unearthly quiet of his face had changed to an unearthly sorrow, but the terrible certainty of his words remained the same. Darker and darker, he said, Father, and farther yet, death takes the good, the beautiful, and the young, and spares me. The pestilence that wastes, the arrow that strikes, the sea that drowns, the grave that closes over love and hope, are steps of my journey, and take me nearer and nearer to the end. My heart sank under a dread beyond words, under a grief beyond tears. The darkness closed round the pilgrim at the marble tomb, closed round the veiled woman from the grave, closed round the dreamer who looked on them. I saw and heard no more. I was aroused by a hand laid on my shoulder. It was Laura's. She had dropped on her knees by the side of the sofa. Her face was flushed and agitated, and her eyes met mine in a wild, bewildered manner. I started the instant I saw her. "'What has happened?' I asked. "'What has frightened you?' She looked round at the half-open door, put her lips close to my ear, and answered in a whisper, "'Marian, the figure at the lake, the footsteps last night. I've just seen her. I've just spoken to her. Who, for heaven's sake? Anne Catteret!' I was so startled by the disturbance in Laura's face and manner, and so dismayed by the first waking impressions of my dream, that I was not fit to bear the revelation which burst upon me when that name passed her lips. I could only stand rooted to the floor, looking at her in breathless silence. She was too much absorbed by what had happened to notice the effect which her reply had produced on me. "'I have seen Anne Catherick. I have spoken to Anne Catherick,' she repeated, as if I had not heard her. Oh, Marian, I have such things to tell you. Come away. We may be interrupted here. Come at once into my room. With those eager words, she caught me by the hand, and led me through the library to the end room on the ground floor, which had been fitted up for her own especial use. 
no third person except her maid could have any excuse for surprising us here. She pushed me in before her, locked the door, and drew the chintz curtains that hung over the inside. The strange, stunned feeling which had taken possession of me still remained, but a growing conviction that the complications which had long threatened to gather about her, and to gather about me, had suddenly closed fast round us both, was now beginning to penetrate my mind. I could not express it in words. I could hardly even realise it dimly in my own thoughts. "'Anne Catherick,' I whispered to myself, with useless, helpless reiteration, "'Anne Catherick!' Laura drew me to the nearest seat, an ottoman in the middle of the room. "'Look,' she said, "'look here,' and pointed to the bosom of her dress. I saw for the first time that the lost brooch was pinned in its place again. There was something real in the sight of it, something real in the touching of it afterwards, which seemed to steady the whirl and confusion in my thoughts, and to help me to compose myself. Where did you find your brooch? The first words I could say to her were the words which put that trivial question at that important moment. She found it, Marian. Where? On the floor of the boathouse. Oh, how shall I begin? How shall I tell you about it? She talked to me so strangely. She looked so fearfully ill. She left me so suddenly. Her voice rose, as the tumult of her recollections pressed upon her mind. The inveterate distrust which weighs night and day on my spirits in this house instantly roused me to warn her, just as the sight of the brooch had roused me to question her the moment before. Speak low, I said. The window is open, and the garden path runs beneath it. Begin at the beginning, Laura. Tell me, word for word, what passed between that woman and you. Shall I close the window? No, only speak low. Only remember that Anne Catherick is a dangerous subject under your husband's roof. Where did you first see her? At the boathouse, Marianne. I went out, as you know, to find my brooch, and I walked along the path through the plantation, looking down on the ground carefully at every step. In that way I got on, after a long time, to the boathouse, and as soon as I was inside it I went on my knees to hunt over the floor. I was still searching with my back to the doorway, when I heard a soft, strange voice behind me say, Miss Fairley. Miss Fairley? Yes, my old name, the dear familiar name that I thought I had parted from for ever. I started up, not frightened, the voice was too kind and gentle to frighten anybody but very much surprised. There, looking at me from the doorway, stood a woman whose face I never remembered to have seen before. How was she dressed? She had a neat, pretty white gown on, and over it a poor, worn, thin, dark shawl. Her bonnet was of brown straw, as poor and worn as the shawl. I was struck by the difference between her gown and the rest of her dress, and she saw that, I noticed it. "'Don't look at my bonnet and shawl,' she said, speaking in a quick, breathless, sudden way. "'If I mustn't wear white, I don't care what I wear. Look at my gown as much as you please. I'm not ashamed of that.' Very strange, was it not? Before I could say anything to soothe her, she held out one of her hands, and I saw my brooch in it. I was so pleased and so grateful that I went quite close to her to say what I really felt. 
are you thankful enough to do me one little kindness she asked yes indeed i answered any kindness in my power i shall be glad to show you then let me pin your brooch on for you now i have found it her request was so unexpected marian and she made it with such extraordinary eagerness that i drew back a step or two not well knowing what to do ah she said your mother would have let me pin on the brooch there was something in her voice and her look as well as in her mentioning my mother in that reproachful manner which made me ashamed of my distrust i took her hand with the brooch in it and put it up gently on the bosom of my dress you knew my mother i said was it very long ago have i ever seen you before her hands were busy fastening the brooch she stopped and pressed them against my breast you don't remember a fine spring day at the bridge she said and your mother walking down the path that led to the school with a little girl on each side of her i have had nothing else to think of since and i remember it you were one of the little girls and i was the other pretty clever miss Fairley, and poor dazed anne catherick were nearer to each other then than they are now did you remember her laura when she told you her name yes i remembered your asking me about anne catherick at limeridge and your saying that she had once been considered like me what reminded you of that laura she reminded me while i was looking at her while she was very close to me it came over my mind suddenly that we were like each other her face was pale and thin and weary but the sight of it startled me as if it had been the sight of my own face in the glass after a long illness the discovery i don't know why gave me such a shock that i was perfectly incapable of speaking to her for the moment did she seem hurt by your silence i am afraid she was hurt by it you have not got your mother's face she said or your mother's heart your mother's face was dark and your mother's heart miss Fairley, was the heart of an angel i am sure i feel kindly towards you i said though i may not be able to express it as i ought why do you call me miss Fairley? because i love the name of Fairley and hate the name of glyde she broke out violently i had seen nothing like madness in her before this but i fancied i saw it now in her eyes i only thought you might not know i was married i said remembering the wild letter she wrote to me at limeridge and trying to quiet her she sighed bitterly and turned away from me not know you were married she repeated i am here because you are married i am here to make atonement to you before i meet your mother in the world beyond the grave she drew farther and farther away from me till she was out of the boathouse and then she watched and listened for a little while when she turned round to speak again instead of coming back she stopped where she was looking in at me with a hand on each side of the entrance did you see me at the lake last night she said did you hear me following you in the wood i have been waiting for days together to speak to you alone i have left the only friend i have in the world anxious and frightened about me i have risked being shut up again in the madhouse and all for your sake miss Fairley, all for your sake her words alarmed me marian and yet there was something in the way she spoke that made me pity her with all my heart i am sure my pity must have been sincere for it made me bold enough to ask the poor creature to come in and sit down in the boat-house by my side did she do so no she shook her head 
and told me she must stop where she was to watch and listen, and see that no third person surprised us, and from first to last there she waited at the entrance, with a hand on each side of it, sometimes bending in suddenly to speak to me, sometimes drawing back suddenly to look about her. I was here yesterday, she said, before it came dark, and I heard you and the lady with you talking together. I heard you tell her about your husband. I heard you say you had no influence to make him believe you, and no influence to keep him silent. Ah, I knew what those words meant. My conscience told me while I was listening, why did I ever let you marry him? Oh, my fear, my mad, miserable, wicked fear! She covered up her face in her poor worn shawl, and moaned and murmured to herself behind it. I began to be afraid she might break out into some terrible despair which neither she nor I could master. Try to quiet yourself, I said. Try to tell me how you might have prevented my marriage. She took the shawl from her face and looked at me vacantly. I ought to have had heart enough to stop at Limerick, she answered. I ought never to have let the news of his coming there frighten me away. I ought to have warned you and saved you before it was too late. Why did I only have courage enough to write you that letter? Why did I only do harm when I wanted and meant to do good? Oh, my fear, my mad, miserable, wicked fear! She repeated those words again, and hid her face again in the end of her poor worn shawl. It was dreadful to see her and dreadful to hear her. Surely, Laura, you asked what the fear was which she dwelt on so earnestly. Yes, I asked that. And what did she say? She asked me in return if I should not be afraid of a man who had shut me up in a madhouse, and who would shut me up again if he could. I said, Are you afraid still? Surely you would not be here if you were afraid now. No, she said, I am not afraid now. I asked why not. She suddenly bent forward into the boathouse and said, Can't you guess why? I shook my head. Look at me, she went on. I told her I was grieved to see that she looked very sorrowful and very ill. She smiled for the first time. Ill, she repeated, I'm dying. You know why I'm not afraid of him now. Do you think I shall meet your mother in heaven? Will she forgive me if I do? I was so shocked and so startled that I could make no reply. I have been thinking of it, she went on, all the time I have been in hiding from your husband, all the time I lay ill. My thoughts have driven me here. I want to make atonement. I want to undo all I can of the harm I once did. I begged her as earnestly as I could to tell me what she meant. She still looked at me with fixed vacant eyes. Shall I undo the harm? She said to herself doubtfully. You have friends to take your part. If you know his secret, he will be afraid of you. He won't dare use you as he used me. He must treat you mercifully for his own sake, if he is afraid of you and your friends. And if he treats you mercifully, and if I can say it was my doing... I listened eagerly for more, but she stopped at those words. You tried to make her go on. I tried, but she only drew herself away from me again, and leaned her face and arms against the side of the boathouse. Oh, I heard her say, with a dreadful, distracted tenderness in her voice. Oh, if I could only be buried with your mother, if I could only wake at her side, 
when the angel's trumpet sounds and the graves give up their dead at the resurrection marion i trembled from head to foot it was horrible to hear her but there is no hope of that she said moving a little so as to look at me again no hope for a poor stranger like me i shall not rest under the marble cross that i washed with my own hands and made so white and pure for her sake oh no oh no god's mercy not man's will take me to her where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest she spoke those words quietly and sorrowfully with a heavy hopeless sigh and then waited a little her face was confused and troubled she seemed to be thinking or trying to think what was it i said just now she asked after a while when your mother is in my mind everything else goes out of it oh what was i saying what was i saying i reminded the poor creature as kindly and delicately as i could ah yes yes she said still in a vacant perplexed manner you are hopeless with your wicked husband yes and i must do what i have come to do here i must make it up to you for having been afraid to speak out at a better time what is it you have to tell me i asked the secret that your cruel husband is afraid of she answered i once threatened him with the secret and frightened him you shall threaten him with the secret and frighten him too her face darkened and a hard angry stare fixed itself in her eyes she began waving her hand at me in a vacant unmeaning manner my mother knows the secret she said my mother has wasted under the secret half her lifetime one day when i was grown up she said something to me and the next day your husband yes yes go on what did she tell you about your husband she stopped again marian at that point and said no more and listened eagerly hush she whispered still waving her hand at me hush she moved aside out of the doorway moved slowly and stealthily step by step till i lost her past the edge of the boathouse surely you followed her yes my anxiety made me bold enough to rise and follow her just as i reached the entrance she appeared again suddenly round the side of the boathouse the secret i whispered to her wait and tell me the secret she caught hold of my arm and looked at me with wild frightened eyes not now she said we are not alone we are watched come here to-morrow at this time by yourself mind by yourself she pushed me roughly into the boathouse again and i saw her no more oh laura laura another chance lost if i had only been near you she should not have escaped us on which side did you lose sight of her on the left side where the ground sinks and the wood is thickest did you run out again did you call after her how could i i was too terrified to move or speak but when you did move when you came out i ran back here to tell you what had happened did you see any one or hear any one in the plantation no it seemed to be all still and quiet when i passed through it i waited for a moment to consider was this third person supposed to have been secretly present at the interview a reality or the creature of anne catherick's excited fancy it was impossible to determine the one thing certain was that we had failed again on the very brink of discovery failed utterly and irretrievably 
unless Anne Catherick kept her appointment at the boat-house for the next day. "'Are you quite sure you have told me everything that passed, every word that was said?' I inquired. "'I think so,' she answered. "'My powers of memory, Marion, are not like yours. But I was so strongly impressed, so deeply interested, that nothing of any importance can possibly have escaped me.' "'My dear Laura,' The merest trifles are of importance where Anne Catherick is concerned. Think again. Did no chance reference escape her as to the place in which she is living at the present time? None that I can remember. Did she not mention a companion and friend, a woman named Mrs. Clements? Oh, yes, yes, I forgot that. She told me Mrs. Clements wanted sadly to go with her to the lake and take care of her, and begged and prayed that she would not venture into this neighbourhood alone. Was that all she said about Mrs. Clements? Yes, that was all. She told you nothing about the place in which she took refuge after leaving Todd's Corner? Nothing, I am quite sure. Nor where she has lived since, nor what her illness had been. No, Marian, not a word. Oh, tell me, pray tell me what you think about it. I don't know what to think or what to do next. You must do this, my love. You must carefully keep the appointment at the boat-house to-morrow. It is impossible to say what interests may not depend on your seeing that woman again. You shall not be left to yourself a second time. I will follow you at a safe distance. Nobody shall see me, but I will keep within hearing of your voice if anything happens. Anne Catherick has escaped Walter Hartwright, and has escaped you. Whatever happens, she shall not escape me. Laura's eyes read mine attentively. "'You believe,' she said, "'in this secret that my husband is afraid of. Suppose, Marian, it should only exist, after all, in Anne Catherick's fancy. Suppose she only wanted to see me and to speak to me for the sake of old remembrances. Her manner was so strange. I almost doubted her. Would you trust her in other things?' "'I trust nothing, Laura, but my own observation of your husband's conduct. I judge Anne Catherick's words by his actions, and I believe there is a secret. I said no more, and got up to leave the room. Thoughts were troubling me, which I might have told her if we had spoken together longer, and which it might have been dangerous for her to know. The influence of the terrible dream from which she had awakened me hung darkly and heavily over every fresh impression which the progress of her narrative produced on my mind. I felt the ominous future coming close, chilling me with an unutterable awe, forcing on me the conviction of an unforeseen design in the long series of complications which had now fastened round us. I thought of Hartwright, as I saw him in the body when he said farewell, as I saw him in the spirit in my dream, and I too began to doubt now whether we were not advancing blindfold to an appointed and an inevitable end. Leaving Laura to go upstairs alone, I went out to look about me in the walks near the house. The circumstances under which Anne Catherick had parted from her had made me secretly anxious to know how Count Fosco was passing the afternoon, and had rendered me secretly distrustful of the results of that solitary journey from which Sir Percival had returned but a few hours since. After looking for them in every direction, and discovering nothing, I returned to the house 
and entered the different rooms on the ground floor one after another. They were all empty. I came out again into the hall, and went upstairs to return to Laura. Madame Fosco opened her door as I passed it in my way along the passage, and I stopped to see if she could inform me of the whereabouts of her husband and Sir Percival. Yes, she had seen them both from her window more than an hour since. The Count had looked up with his customary kindness, and had mentioned with his habitual attention to her in the smallest trifles that he and his friend were going out together for a long walk. For a long walk! They had never yet been in each other's company with that object in my experience of them. Sir Percival cared for no exercise but riding, and the Count, except when he was polite enough to be my escort, cared for no exercise at all. When I joined Laura again, I found that she had called to mind in my absence the impending question of the signature to the deed which, in the interest of discussing her interview with Anne Catherick, we had hitherto overlooked. Her first words when I saw her expressed her surprise at the absence of the expected summons to attend Sir Percival in the library. "'You may make your mind easy on that subject,' I said. "'For the present, at least, neither your resolution nor mine will be exposed to any further trial.' Sir Percival has altered his plans. The business of the signature is put off. Put off? Laura repeated amazedly. Who told you so? My authority is Count Fosco. I believe it is to his interference that we are indebted for your husband's sudden change of purpose. It seems impossible, Marian. If the object of my signing was, as we suppose, to obtain money for Sir Percival that he urgently wanted, how can the matter be put off? I think, Laura, we have the means at hand of setting that doubt at rest. Have you forgotten the conversation that I heard between Sir Percival and the lawyer as they were crossing the hall? No, but I don't remember. I do. There were two alternatives proposed. One was to obtain your signature to the parchment. The other was to gain time by giving bills of three months. The last resource is evidently the resource now adopted, and we may fairly hope to be relieved from our share in Sir Percival's embarrassments for some time to come. Oh, Marian, it sounds too good to be true. Does it, my love? You complimented me on my ready memory not long since, but you seem to doubt it now. I will get my journal, and you shall see if I am right or wrong. I went away and got the book at once. On looking back to the entry referring to the lawyer's visit, we found that my recollection of the two alternatives presented was accurately correct. It was almost as great a relief to my mind as to Laura's to find that my memory had served me on this occasion as faithfully as usual. In the perilous uncertainty of our present situation, it is hard to say what future interests may not depend upon the regularity of the entries in my journal, and upon the reliability of my recollection at the time when I make them. Laura's face and manner suggested to me that this last consideration had occurred to her as well as to myself. Anyway, it is only a trifling matter, and I am almost ashamed to put it down here in writing. It seems to set the forlornness of our situation in such a miserably vivid light. You must have little indeed to depend on when the discovery that my memory can still be trusted to serve us 
is hailed as if it was the discovery of a new friend. The first bell for dinner separated us, just as is the done ringing, Sir Percival and the Count returned from their walk. We heard the master of the house storming at the servants for being five minutes late, and the master's guest interposing, as usual, in the interests of propriety, patience, and peace. The evening has come and gone. No extraordinary event has happened, but I have noticed certain peculiarities in the conduct of Sir Percival and the Count, which have sent me to my bed feeling very anxious and uneasy about Anne Catherick, and about the results which to-morrow may produce. I know enough by this time to be sure that the aspect of Sir Percival which is the most false, and which therefore means the worst, is his polite aspect. That long walk with his friend had ended in improving his manners, especially towards his wife. To Laura's secret surprise, and to my secret alarm, he called her by her Christian name, asked if she had heard lately from her uncle, inquired when Mrs. Vasey was to receive her invitation to Blackwater, and showed her so many other little attentions, that he almost recalled the days of his hateful courtship at Limeridge House. This was a bad sign to begin with, and I thought it more ominous still that he should pretend after dinner to fall asleep in the drawing-room, and that his eyes should cunningly follow Laura and me, when he thought we neither of us suspected him. I have never had any doubt that his sudden journey by himself took him to Wellmingham to question Mrs. Catherick, but the experience of to-night has made me fear that the expedition was not undertaken in vain, and that he has got the information which he unquestionably left us to collect. If I knew where Anne Catherick was to be found, I would be up to-morrow with sunrise and warn her while the aspect under which Sir Percival presented himself to-night was unhappily but too familiar to me. The aspect under which the Count appeared was, on the other hand, entirely new in my experience of him. He permitted me this evening to make his acquaintance for the first time in the character of a man of sentiment, of sentiment, as I believe, really felt, not assumed for the occasion. For instance, he was quiet and subdued. His eyes and his voice expressed a restrained sensibility. He wore as if there was some hidden connection between his showiest finery and his deepest feeling, the most magnificent waistcoat he has yet appeared in. It was made of pale sea-green silk and delicately trimmed with fine silver braid. His voice sank into the tenderest inflections, his smile expressed a thoughtful fatherly admiration whenever he spoke to Laura or to me. He pressed his wife's hand under the table when she thanked him for trifling little attentions at dinner. He took wine with her. "'Your health and happiness, my angel,' he said, with fond glistening eyes. He ate little or nothing and sighed and said, "'Good Percival,' when his friend laughed at him. After dinner he took Laura by the hand and asked her if she would be so sweet as to play to him. She complied through sheer astonishment. He sat by the piano, with his watch-chain resting in folds like a golden serpent on the sea-green protuberance of his waistcoat. His immense head lay languidly on one side, and he gently beat time with two of his yellow-white fingers. He highly approved of the music, and tenderly admired Laura's manner of playing, 
not as poor Hartwright used to praise it, with an innocent enjoyment of the sweet sounds, but with a clear, cultivated, practical knowledge of the merits of the composition in the first place, and of the merits of the player's touch in the second. As the evening closed in, he begged that the lovely dying light might not be profaned just yet by the appearance of the lamps. He came with his horribly silent tread to the distant window at which I was standing, to be out of his way and to avoid the very sight of him. He came to ask me to support his protest against the lamps. If any one of them could only have burnt him up at that moment, I would have gone down to the kitchen and fetched it myself. "'Surely you like this modest, trembling English twilight,' he said softly. "'Ah, I love it. I feel my inborn admiration of all that is noble and great and good, purified by the breath of heaven on an evening like this. Nature has such imperishable charms, such inextinguishable tenderness for me. I am an old fat man. Talk which would become your lips, Miss Halcombe.' sounds like a derision and a mockery on mine it is hard to be laughed at in my moments of sentiment as if my soul was like myself old and overgrown observe dear lady what a light is dying on the trees does it penetrate your heart as it penetrates mine he paused looked at me and repeated the famous lines of dante on the evening time with a melody and tenderness which added a charm of their own to the matchless beauty of the poetry itself. Bah! he cried suddenly, as the last cadence of those noble Italian words died away on his lips. I make an old fool of myself, and only weary you all. Let us shut up the window in our bosoms and get back to the matter-of-fact world. Percival, I sanction the admission of the lamps, Lady Glyde, Miss Halcombe, Eleanor, my good wife. Which of you will indulge me with a gain at dominoes? He addressed us all, but he looked especially at Laura. She had learned to feel my dread of offending him, and she accepted his proposal. It was more than I could have done at that moment. I could not have sat down at the same table with him for any consideration. His eyes seemed to reach my inmost soul, through the thickening obscurity of the twilight. His voice trembled along every nerve in my body, and turned me hot and cold alternately. The mystery and terror of my dream, which had haunted me at intervals all through the evening, now oppressed my mind with an unendurable foreboding and an unutterable awe. I saw the white tomb again, and the veiled woman rising out of it by Hartwright's side. The thought of Laura welled up like a spring in the depths of my heart, and filled it with waters of bitterness never, never known to it before. I caught her by the hand as she passed me on her way to the table, and kissed her as if that night was to part us for ever. While they were all gazing at me in astonishment, I ran out through the low window which was open before me to the ground, ran out to hide from them in the darkness, to hide even from myself. We separated that evening later than usual. Towards midnight the summer silence was broken by the shuddering of a low melancholy wind among the trees. We all felt the sudden chill in the atmosphere, but the Count was the first to notice the stealthy rising of the wind. He stopped while he was lighting my candle for me, and held up his hand warningly. "'Listen,' he said. 
there will be a change to-morrow. End of chapter 16Chapter 17 of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. 7. June 19th. The events of yesterday warned me to be ready sooner or later to meet the worst. Today is not yet at an end, and the worst has come. Judging by the closest calculation of time that Laura and I could make, we arrived at the conclusion that Anne Catherick must have appeared at the boathouse at half-past two o'clock on the afternoon of yesterday. I accordingly arranged that Laura should just show herself at the luncheon-table to-day, and should then slip out at the first opportunity, leaving me behind to preserve appearances and to follow her as soon as I could safely do so. This mode of proceeding, if no obstacles occurred to Thortus, would enable her to be at the boat-house before half-past two, and, when I left the table in my turn, would take me to a safe position in the plantation before three. The change in the weather, which last night's wind warned us to expect, came with the morning. It was raining heavily when I got up, and it continued to rain until twelve o'clock. When the clouds dispersed, the blue sky appeared, and the sun shone again with the bright promise of a fine afternoon. My anxiety to know how Sir Percival and the Count would occupy the early part of the day was by no means set at rest, so far as Sir Percival was concerned, by his leaving us immediately after breakfast and going out by himself, in spite of the rain. He neither told us where he was going, nor when we might expect him back. We saw him pass the breakfast-room window hastily, with his high boots and his waterproof coat on, and that was all. The Count passed the morning quietly indoors, some part of it in the library, some part in the drawing-room playing odds and ends of music on the piano, and humming to himself. Judging by appearances, the sentimental side of his character was persistently inclined to betray itself still. He was silent and sensitive, and ready to sigh and languish ponderously, as only fat men can sigh and languish, on the smallest provocation. Luncheon time came, and Sir Percival did not return. The Count took his friend's place at the table, plaintively devoured the greater part of a fruit tart, submerged under a whole jugful of cream, and explained the full merit of the achievement to us as soon as he had done. A taste for sweets, he said, in his softest tones and his tenderest manner, is the innocent taste of women and children. I love to share it with them. It is another bond, dear ladies, between you and me. Laura left the table in ten minutes' time. I was sorely tempted to accompany her. But if we had both gone out together, 
we must have excited suspicion, and worse still, if we allowed Anne Catherick to see Laura accompanied by a second person, who was a stranger to her, we should, in all probability, forfeit her confidence from that moment, never to regain it again. I waited, therefore, as patiently as I could, until the servant came in to clear the table. When I quitted the room, there were no signs in the house or out of it of Sir Percival's return. I left the Count with a piece of sugar between his lips, and the vicious cockatoo scrambling up his waistcoat to get at it, while Madame Fosco, sitting opposite to her husband, watched the proceedings of his bird and himself as attentively as if she had never seen anything of the sort before in her life. On my way to the plantation, I kept carefully beyond the range of view from the luncheon-room window. Nobody saw me, and nobody followed me. It was then a quarter to three o'clock by my watch. Once among the trees, I walked rapidly, until I had advanced more than half-way through the plantation. At that point I slackened my pace, and proceeded cautiously, but I saw no one, and heard no voices. By little and little I came within view of the back of the boathouse, stopped and listened, then went on till I was close behind it, and must have heard any persons who were talking inside. Still the silence was unbroken, still far and near no sign of a living creature appeared anywhere. After skirting round by the back of the building, first on one side and then on the other, and making no discoveries, I ventured in front of it, and fairly looked in. The place was empty. I called Laura, at first softly, then louder and louder. No one answered, and no one appeared. For all that I could see and hear, the only human creature in the neighbourhood of the lake and the plantation was myself. My heart began to beat violently, but I kept my resolution and searched, first the boathouse, and then the ground in front of it, for any sign which might show me whether Laura had really reached the place or not. No mark of her presence appeared inside the building, but I found traces of her outside it, in footsteps on the sand. I detected the footsteps of two persons, large footsteps like a man's, and small footsteps which, by putting my own feet into them and testing their size in that manner, I felt certain were Laura's. The ground was confusedly marked in this way, just before the boathouse. Close against one side of it, under shelter of the projecting roof, I discovered a little hole in the sand, a hole artificially made beyond a doubt. I just noticed it, and then turned away immediately to trace the footsteps as far as I could, and to follow the direction in which they might lead me. They led me starting from the left-hand side of the boathouse, along the edge of the trees, a distance, I should think, of between two and three hundred yards, and then the sandy ground showed no further trace of them. Feeling that the persons whose course I was tracking must necessarily have entered the plantation at this point, I entered it too. At first I could find no path, but I discovered one afterwards, just faintly traced among the trees, and followed it. It took me for some distance in the direction of the village, 
until I stopped at a point where another foot-track crossed it. The brambles grew thickly on either side of this second path. I stood looking down it, uncertain which way to take next, and while I looked I saw on one thorny branch some fragments of fringe from a woman's shawl. A closer examination of the fringe satisfied me that it had been torn from a shawl of Laura's, and I instantly followed the second path. It brought me out at last to my great relief at the back of the house. I say to my great relief, because I inferred that Laura must, for some unknown reason, have returned before me by this roundabout way. I went in by the courtyard and the offices. The first person whom I met in crossing the servants' hall was Mrs. Mitchelson, the housekeeper. "'Do you know,' I asked, "'whether Lady Glyde has come in from her walk or not?' "'My lady came in a little while ago with Sir Percival,' answered the housekeeper. "'I am afraid, Miss Harkham, something very distressing has happened.' My heart sank within me. "'You don't mean an accident?' I said faintly. "'No, no, thank God, no accident.' but my lady ran upstairs to her own room in tears, and Sir Percival has ordered me to give Fanny warning to leave in an hour's time. Fanny was Laura's maid, a good, affectionate girl who had been with her for years, the only person in the house whose fidelity and devotion we could both depend upon. Where is Fanny? I inquired. In my room, Miss Harkham. The young woman is quite overcome and I told her to sit down and try to recover herself. I went to Mrs. Mitchelson's room, and found Fanny in a corner, with her box by her side, crying bitterly. She could give me no explanation whatever of her sudden dismissal. Sir Percival had ordered that she should have a month's wages in place of a month's warning and go. No reason had been assigned, no objection had been made to her conduct, she had been forbidden to appeal to her mistress, forbidden even to see her for a moment to say good-bye. She was to go without explanations or farewells, and to go at once. After soothing the poor girl by a few friendly words, I asked where she proposed to sleep that night. She replied that she thought of going to the little inn in the village, the landlady of which was a respectable woman, known to the servants of Blackwater Park. The next morning, by leaving early, she might get back to her friends in Cumberland without stopping in London, where she was a total stranger. I felt directly that Fanny's departure offered us a safe means of communication with London and with Limeridge House, of which it might be very important to avail ourselves. Accordingly, I told her that she might expect to hear from her mistress or from me in the course of the evening, and that she might depend on our both doing all that lay in our power to help her, under the trial of leaving us for the present. Those words said, I shook hands with her, and went upstairs. The door which led to Laura's room was the door of an antechamber opening onto the passage. When I tried it, it was bolted on the inside. I knocked, and the door was opened by the same heavy, overgrown housemaid whose lumpish insensibility had tried my patience so severely on the day when I found the wounded dog. 
I had, since that time, discovered that her name was Margaret Porcher, and that she was the most awkward, slatternly, and obstinate servant in the house. On opening the door, she instantly stepped out to the threshold, and stood grinning at me in stolid silence. "'Why do you stand there?' I said. "'Don't you see that I want to come in?' "'Ah, but you mustn't come in,' was the answer, with another and a broader grin still. "'How dare you talk to me in that way? Stand back instantly!' She stretched out a great red hand and arm on each side of her, so as to bar the doorway, and slowly nodded her addle head at me. "'Master's orders,' she said, and nodded again. I had need of all my self-control to warn me against contesting the matter with her, and to remind me that the next words I had to say must be addressed to her master. I turned my back on her, and instantly went downstairs to find him. My resolution to keep my temper under all the irritations that Sir Percival could offer was, by this time, as completely forgotten, I say to my shame, as if I had never made it. It did me good, after all I had suffered and suppressed in that house, it actually did me good to feel how angry I was. The drawing-room and the breakfast-room were both empty. I went on to the library, and there I found Sir Percival the Count and Madame Fosco. They were all three standing up close together, and Sir Percival had a little slip of paper in his hand. As I opened the door, I heard the Count say to him, No, a thousand times over, no. I walked straight up to him, and looked him full in the face. Am I to understand, Sir Percival, that your wife's room is a prison, and that your housemaid is the jailer who keeps it? I asked. Yes, that is what you are to understand, he answered. Take care my jailer hasn't got double duty to do. Take care your room is not a prison, too. Take you care how you treat your wife and how you threaten me, I broke out in the heat of my anger. There are laws in England to protect women from cruelty and outrage. If you hurt a hair of Laura's head, if you dare to interfere with my freedom, come what may, to those laws I will appeal. Instead of answering me, he turned round to the Count. What did I tell you? he asked. What do you say now? What I said before, replied the Count. No. Even in the vehemence of my anger, I felt his calm, cold, grey eyes on my face. They turned away from me as soon as he had spoken, and looked significantly at his wife. Madame Fosco immediately moved close to my side, and in that position addressed Sir Percival before either of us could speak again. "'Favour me with your attention for one moment,' she said, in her clear, icily suppressed tones. "'I have to thank you.' Sir Percival, for your hospitality, and to decline taking advantage of it any longer. I remain in no house in which ladies are treated as your wife and Miss Halcombe have been treated here to-day. Sir Percival drew back a step, and stared at her in dead silence. The declaration he had just heard, 
a declaration which she well knew, as I well knew, Madame Fosco would not have ventured to make without her husband's permission, seemed to petrify him with surprise. The Count stood by and looked at his wife with the most enthusiastic admiration. She is sublime, he said to himself. He approached her while he spoke and drew her hand through his arm. I am at your service, Eleanor, he went on, with a quiet dignity that I had never noticed in him before, and at Miss Halcombe's service, if she will honour me by accepting all the assistance I can offer her. Damn it! What do you mean? cried Sir Percival, as the Count quietly moved away with his wife to the door. At other times I mean what I say, but at this time... I mean what my wife says, replied the impenetrable Italian. We have changed places possible for once, and Madame Fosco's opinion is mine. Sir Percival crumpled up the paper in his hand, and pushing past the Count with another oath, stood between him and the door. Have your own way, he said with baffled rage in his low half-whispering tones have your own way and see what comes of it with those words he left the room madame fosco glanced inquiringly at her husband he has gone away very suddenly she said what does it mean it means that you and i together have brought the worst-tempered man in all england to his senses answered the count it means, Miss Halcombe, that Lady Glyde is relieved from a gross indignity, and you from the repetition of an unpardonable insult. Suffer me to express my admiration of your conduct and your courage at a very trying moment. Sincere admiration, suggested Madame Fosco. Sincere admiration echoed the count i had no longer the strength of my first angry resistance to outrage and injury to support me my heart-sick anxiety to see laura my sense of my own helpless ignorance of what had happened at the boat-house pressed on me with an intolerable weight i tried to keep up appearances by speaking to the count and his wife in the tone which they had chosen to adopt in speaking to me. But the words failed on my lips. My breath came short and thick. My eyes looked longingly in silence at the door. The Count, understanding my anxiety, opened it, went out, and pulled it to after him. At the same time, Sir Percival's heavy step descended the stairs. I heard them whispering together outside, while Madame Fosco was assuring me, in her calmest and most conventional manner, that she rejoiced, for all our sakes, that Sir Percival's conduct had not obliged her husband and herself to leave Blackwater Park. Before she had done speaking, the whispering ceased, the door opened, and the Count looked in. "'Miss Halcombe,' he said, "'I am happy to inform you "'that Lady Glyde is mistress again in her own house. "'I thought 
it might be more agreeable to you to hear of this change for the better from me than from sir percival and i have therefore expressly returned to mention it admirable delicacy said madame fosco paying back her husband's tribute of admiration with the count's own coin in the count's own manner he smiled and bowed as if he had received a formal compliment from a polite stranger and drew back to let me pass out first sir percival was standing in the hall as i hurried to the stairs i heard him call impatiently to the count to come out of the library what are you waiting there for he said i want to speak to you and i want to think a little by myself replied the other wait till later possible wait till later neither he nor his friend said any more i gained the top of the stairs and ran along the passage in my haste and my agitation i left the door of the antechamber open but i closed the door of the bedroom the moment i was inside it laura was sitting alone at the far end of the room her arms resting wearily on the table and her face hidden in her hands she started up with a cry of delight when she saw me how did you get here she asked who gave you leave not sir percival in my overpowering anxiety to hear what she had to tell me i could not answer her i could only put questions on my side laura's eagerness to know what had passed downstairs proved however too strong to be resisted she persistently repeated her inquiries the count of course i answered impatiently whose influence in the house she stopped me with a gesture of disgust don't speak of him she cried the count is the vilest creature breathing the count is a miserable spy before we could either of us say another word we were alarmed by a soft knocking at the door of the bedroom i had not yet sat down and i went first to see who it was when i opened the door madame fosco confronted me with my handkerchief in her hand you dropped this downstairs miss halcombe she said and i thought i could bring it to you as i was passing by to my own room her face naturally pale had turned to such a ghastly whiteness that i started at the sight of it her hands so sure and steady at all other times trembled violently and her eyes looked wolfishly past me through the open door and fixed on laura she had been listening before she knocked i saw it in her white face i saw it in her trembling hands i saw it in her look at laura after waiting an instant she turned from me in silence and slowly walked away i closed the door again oh laura laura we shall both rue the day when you called the count a spy you would have called him so yourself marian if you had known what i know and catherick was right there was a third person watching us in the plantation yesterday and that third person are you sure it was the count i am absolutely certain he was sir percival's spy he was sir percival's informer he set sir percival watching and waiting all the morning through for anne catherick and for me is anne found did you see her at the lake no she has saved herself by keeping away from the place 
when i got to the boat-house no one was there yes yes i went in and sat waiting for a few minutes but my restlessness made me get up again to walk about a little as i passed out i saw some marks on the sand close under the front of the boat-house i stooped down to examine them and discovered a word written in large letters on the sand the word was look and you scraped away the sand and dug a hollow place in it how do you know that marian i saw the hollow place myself when i followed you to the boat-house go on go on yes i scraped away the sand on the surface and in a little while i came to a strip of paper hidden beneath which had writing on it the writing was signed with anne catherick's initials where is it sir percival has taken it from me can you remember what the writing was do you think you can repeat it to me in substance i can marian it was very short you would have remembered it word for word try to tell me what the substance was before we go any further she complied i write the lines down here exactly as she repeated them to me they ran thus i was seen with you yesterday by a tall stout old man and had to run to save myself he was not quick enough on his feet to follow me and he lost me among the trees i dare not risk coming back here to-day at the same time i write this and hide it in the sand at six in the morning to tell you so when we speak next of your wicked husband's secret we must speak safely or not at all try to have patience i promise you shall see me again and that soon a c the reference to the tall stout old man the terms of which laura was certain that she had repeated to me correctly left no doubt as to who the intruder had been i called to mind that i had told sir percival in the count's presence the day before that laura had gone to the boat-house to look for her brooch in all probability he had followed her there in his officious way to relieve her mind about the matter of the signature immediately after he had mentioned the change in sir percival's plans to me in the drawing-room in this case he could only have got to the neighbourhood of the boat-house at the very moment when Anne Catherick discovered him. The suspiciously hurried manner in which she parted from Laura had no doubt prompted his useless attempt to follow her. Of the conversation which had previously taken place between them, he could have heard nothing. The distance between the house and the lake, and the time at which he left me in the drawing-room, as compared with the time at which laura and anne catherick had been speaking together proved that fact to us at any rate beyond a doubt having arrived at something like a conclusion so far my next great interest was to know what discovery sir percival had made after count fosco had given him his information how came you to lose possession of the letter i asked what did you do with it when you found it in the sand after reading it once through she replied i took it into the boat-house with me to sit down and look over it a second time while i was reading a shadow fell across the paper i looked up and saw sir percival standing in the doorway watching me did you try to hide the letter i tried but he stopped me you needn't trouble to hide that he said i happen to have read it i could only look at him helplessly 
I could say nothing. You understand, he went on. I have read it. I dug it up out of the sand two hours since, and buried it again, and wrote the word above it again, and left it ready to your hands. You can't lay yourself out of the scrape now. You saw Anne Catherick in secret yesterday, and you have got her letter in your hand at this moment. I have not caught her yet, but I have caught you. Give me the letter. He stepped close up to me. I was alone with him, Marion. What could I do? I gave him the letter. What did he say when you gave it to him? At first he said nothing. He took me by the arm and led me out of the boathouse and looked about him on all sides, as if he was afraid of our being seen or heard. Then he clasped his hand fast round my arm and whispered to me, what did Anne Catherick say to you yesterday? I insist on hearing every word from first to last. Did you tell him? I was alone with him, Marion. His cruel hand was bruising my arm. What could I do? Is the mark on your arm still? Let me see it. Why do you want to see it? I want to see it, Laura, because our endurance must end, and our resistance must begin to-day. That mark is a weapon to strike him with. Let me see it now. I may have to swear to it at some future time. Oh, Marion, don't look so, don't talk so. It doesn't hurt me now. Let me see it. She showed me the marks. I was past grieving over them, past crying over them, past shuddering over them. They say we are either better than men or worse. If the temptation that has fallen in some women's way and made them worse had fallen in mine at that moment. Thank God, my face betrayed nothing that his wife could read. The gentle, innocent, affectionate creature thought I was frightened for her and sorry for her, and thought no more. Don't think too seriously of it, Marion, she said simply, as she pulled her sleeve down again. It doesn't hurt me now. I will try to think quietly of it, my love, for your sake. Well, well, and you told him all that Anne Catherick had said to you, all that you told me. Yes, all. He insisted on it. I was alone with him. I could conceal nothing. Did he say anything when you had done? He looked at me and laughed to himself in a mocking, bitter way. I mean to have the rest out of you, he said. Do you hear the rest? I declared to him solemnly that I had told him everything I knew. Not you, he answered. You know more than you choose to tell. Won't you tell it? You shall. I'll wring it out of you at home, if I can't wring it out of you here. He led me away by a strange path through the plantation, a path where there was no hope of our meeting you, and he spoke no more till we came within sight of the house. Then he stopped again and said, Will you take a second chance if I give it to you? Will you think better of it and tell me the rest? I could only repeat the same words I had spoken before. He cursed my obstinacy and went on and took me with him to the house. You can't deceive me, he said. You know more than you choose to tell. I'll have your secret out of you, and I'll have it out of that sister of yours as well. There shall be no more plotting and whispering between you. Neither you nor she shall see each other again till you have confessed the truth. I'll have you watched morning, noon, and night till you confess the truth. He was deaf to everything I could say. He took me straight upstairs into my own room. Fanny was sitting there doing some work for me, and he instantly ordered her out. I'll take good care 
"'You're not mixed up in the conspiracy,' he said. "'You shall leave this house to-day. "'If your mistress wants a maid, "'she shall have one of my choosing.' "'He pushed me into the room "'and locked the door on me. "'He set that senseless woman "'to watch me outside, Marion. "'He looked and spoke like a madman. "'You may hardly understand it. "'He did indeed.' "'I do understand it, Laura. "'He is mad.' mad with the terrors of a guilty conscience every word you have said makes me positively certain that when anne catherick left you yesterday you were on the eve of discovering a secret which might have been your vile husband's ruin and he thinks you have discovered it nothing you can say or do will quiet that guilty distrust and convince his false nature of your truth I don't say this, my love, to alarm you. I say it to open your eyes to your position, and to convince you of the urgent necessity of letting me act as I best can, for your protection while the chance is our own. Count Fosco's interference has secured me access to you to-day, but he may withdraw that interference to-morrow. Sir Percival has already dismissed Fanny because she is a quick-witted girl, and devotedly attached to you and has chosen a woman to take her place who cares nothing for your interests and whose dull intelligence lowers her to the level of the watchdog in the yard it is impossible to say what violent measures he may take next unless we make the most of our opportunities while we have them what can we do marian oh if we could only leave this house never to see it again listen to me my love and try to think that you are not quite helpless so long as i am here with you I will think so. I do think so. Don't altogether forget poor Fanny in thinking of me. She wants help and comfort, too. I will not forget her. I saw her before I came up here, and I have arranged to communicate with her to-night. Letters are not safe in the post-bag at Blackwater Park, and I shall have two to write to-day in your interests, which must pass through no hands but Fanny's. What letters? I mean to write first, Laura to Mr. Gilmore's partner, who has offered to help us in any fresh emergency. Little as I know of the law, I am certain that it can protect a woman from such treatment as that ruffian has inflicted on you to-day. I will go into no details about Anne Catherick, because I have no certain information to give. But the lawyer shall know of those bruises on your arm, and of the violence offered to you in this room, he shall, before I rest to-night, but think of the exposure, Marian. I am calculating on the exposure. Sir Percival has more to dread from it than you have. The prospect of an exposure may bring him to terms when nothing else will. I rose as I spoke, but Laura entreated me not to leave her. You will drive him to desperation, she said, and increase our dangers tenfold. I felt the truth the disheartening truth of those words. But I could not bring myself plainly to acknowledge it to her. In our dreadful position there was no help and no hope for us but in risking the worst. I said so in guarded terms. She sighed bitterly, but did not contest the matter. She only asked about the second letter that I had proposed writing. To whom was it to be addressed? To Mr. Fairley, I said, your uncle is your nearest male relative and the head of the family. He must and shall interfere. 
Laura shook her head sorrowfully. Yes, yes, I went on. Your uncle is a weak, selfish, worldly man, I know, but he is not Sir Percival Glyde, and he has no such friend about him as Count Fosco. I expect nothing from his kindness or his tenderness of feeling towards you or towards me, but he will do anything to pamper his own indolence and to secure his own quiet. Let me only persuade him that his interference at this moment will save him inevitable trouble and wretchedness and responsibility hereafter, and he will bestir himself for his own sake. I know how to deal with him, Laura. I have had some practice. If you could only prevail on him to let me go back to Limeridge for a little while and stay there quietly with you, Marion, I could be almost as happy again as I was before I was married. Those words set me thinking in a new direction. Would it be possible to place Sir Percival between the two alternatives of either exposing himself to the scandal of legal interference on his wife's behalf, or of allowing her to be quietly separated from him for a time, under pretext of a visit to her uncle's house? And could he in that case be reckoned on as likely to accept the last resource? It was doubtful more than doubtful, and yet hopeless as the experiment seemed surely it was worth trying i resolved to try it in sheer despair of knowing what better to do your uncle shall know the wish you have just expressed i said and i will ask the lawyer's advice on the subject as well good may come of it and will come of it i hope saying that i rose again and again laura tried to make me resume my seat don't leave me she said uneasily my desk is on that table you can write here it tried me to the quick to refuse her even in her own interests but we had been too long shut up alone together already our chance of seeing each other again might entirely depend on our not exciting any fresh suspicions it was full time to show myself quietly and unconcernedly among the wretches who were at that very moment, perhaps, thinking of us and talking of us downstairs. I explained the miserable necessity to Laura, and prevailed on her to recognise it as I did. "'I will come back again, love, in an hour or less,' I said. "'The worst is over for to-day. Keep yourself quiet, and fear nothing.' "'Is the key in the door, Marion? Can I lock it on the inside?' "'Yes, here is the key.' lock the door and open it to nobody until i come upstairs again i kissed her and left her it was a relief to me as i walked away to hear the key turned in the lock and to know that the door was at her own command end of chapter seventeen Chapter Eighteen of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Eight. June nineteenth. I had only got as far as the top of the stairs when the locking of Laura's door suggested to me the precaution of also locking my own door and keeping the key safely about me while I was out of the room. 
My journal was already secured with other papers in the table drawer, but my writing materials were left out. These included a seal bearing the common device of two doves drinking out of the same cup, and some sheets of blotting paper, which had the impression on them of the closing lines of my writing in these pages traced during the past night. Distorted by the suspicion which had now become a part of myself, even such trifles as these looked too dangerous to be trusted without a guard. Even the locked table drawer seemed to me not sufficiently protected in my absence until the means of access to it had been carefully secured as well. I found no appearance of anyone having entered the room while I had been talking with Laura. My writing materials, which I had given the servant instructions never to meddle with, were scattered over the table much as usual. The only circumstance in connection with them that at all struck me was that the seal lay tidily in the tray with the pencils and the wax. It was not in my careless habits, I am sorry to say, to put it there, neither did I remember putting it there. But as I could not call to mind, on the other hand, where else I had thrown it down, and as I was also doubtful whether I might not for once have laid it mechanically in the right place, I abstained from adding to the perplexity with which the day's events had filled my mind by troubling it afresh about a trifle. I locked the door, put the key in my pocket, and went downstairs. Madame Fosco was alone in the hall, looking at the weather-glass. "'Still falling,' she said. "'I am afraid we must expect more rain.' Her face was composed again, to its customary expression and its customary colour, but the hand with which she pointed to the dial of the weather-glass still trembled. Could she have told her husband already that she had overheard Laura reviling him in my company as a spy? My strong suspicion that she must have told him, my irresistible dread, all the more overpowering from its very vagueness, of the consequences which might follow, my fixed conviction derived from various little self-betrayals which women notice in each other, that Madame Fosco, in spite of her well-assumed external civility, had not forgiven her niece for innocently standing between her and the legacy of ten thousand pounds, all rushed upon my mind together, all impelled me to speak in the vain hope of using my own influence and my own powers of persuasion for the atonement of Laura's offence. May I trust to your kindness to excuse me, Madame Fosco, if I venture to speak to you on an exceedingly painful subject? She crossed her hands in front of her, and bowed her head solemnly, without uttering a word, and without taking her eyes off mine for a moment. When you are so good as to bring me back my handkerchief, I went on, I am very, very much afraid. You must have accidentally heard Laura say something, which I am unwilling to repeat and which I will not attempt to defend. I will only venture to hope that you have not thought it of sufficient importance to be mentioned to the Count. I think it of no importance whatever, said Madame Fosco sharply and suddenly. But, she added, resuming her icy manner in a moment, I have no secrets from my husband, even in trifles. When he noticed just now that I looked distressed, it was my painful duty to tell him why I was distressed, and I frankly acknowledge to you, Miss Halcombe, that I have told him. I was prepared to hear it, 
and yet she turned me cold all over when she said those words. Let me earnestly entreat you, Madame Posco, let me earnestly entreat the Count, to make some allowances for the sad position in which my sister is placed. She spoke while she was smarting under the insult and injustice inflicted on her by her husband, and she was not herself when she said those rash words. May I hope that they will be considerately and generously forgiven? Most assuredly, said the Count's quiet voice behind me. He had stolen on us with his noiseless tread and his book in his hand from the library. When Lady Glyde said those hasty words, he went on, she did me an injustice which I lament and forgive. Let us never return to the subject, Miss Halcombe. Let us all comfortably combine to forget it from this moment. You are very kind, I said. You relieve me inexpressibly. I tried to continue, but his eyes were on me. His deadly smile that hides everything was set hard and unwavering on his broad, smooth face. My distrust of his unfathomable falseness my sense of my own degradation in stooping to conciliate his wife and himself so disturbed and confused me that the next words failed on my lips and i stood there in silence i beg you on my knees to say no more miss Halcombe. i am truly shocked that you should have thought it necessary to say so much with that polite speech he took my hand oh how i despise myself oh how little comfort there is even in knowing that I submitted to it for Laura's sake. He took my hand and put it to his poisonous lips. Never did I know all my horror of him till then. That innocent familiarity turned my blood as if it had been the vilest insult that a man could offer me. Yet I hid my disgust from him. I tried to smile. I, who once mercilessly despised deceit in other women, was as false as the worst of them, as false as the Judas whose lips had touched my hand. I could not have maintained my degrading self-control. It is all that redeems me in my own estimation to know that I could not, if he had still continued to keep his eyes on my face. His wife's tigerish jealousy came to my rescue, and forced his attention away from me the moment he possessed himself of my hand. Her cold blue eyes caught light, her dull white cheeks flushed into bright colour. She looked years younger than her age in an instant. "'Count,' she said, "'your foreign forms of politeness are not understood by Englishwomen.' "'Pardon me, my angel, the best and dearest Englishwoman in the world understands them.' With those words, he dropped my hand, and quietly raised his wife's hand to his lips in place of it. I ran back up the stairs to take refuge in my own room. If there had been time to think, my thoughts when I was alone again would have caused me bitter suffering, but there was no time to think. Happily for the preservation of my calmness and my courage, there was time for nothing but action. The letters to the lawyer and to Mr. Fairley were still to be written, and I sat down at once, without a moment's hesitation, to devote myself to them. There was no multitude of resources to perplex me. There was absolutely no one to depend on in the first instance but myself. 
Sir Percival had neither friends nor relatives in the neighbourhood whose intercession I could attempt to employ. He was on the coldest terms, in some cases on the worst terms, with the families of his own rank and station who lived near him. We two women had neither father nor brother to come to the house and take our parts. There was no choice but to write those two doubtful letters, or to put Laura in the wrong and myself in the wrong and to make all peaceable negotiation in the future impossible by secretly escaping from Blackwater Park. Nothing but the most imminent personal peril could justify our taking that second course. The letters must be tried first, and I wrote them. I said nothing to the lawyer about Anne Catherick, because, as I had already hinted to Laura, that topic was connected with a mystery which we could not yet explain, and which it would therefore be useless to write about to a professional man. I left my correspondent to attribute Sir Percival's disgraceful conduct, if he pleased, to fresh disputes about money matters, and simply consulted him on the possibility of taking legal proceedings for Laura's protection in the event of her husband's refusal to allow her to leave Blackwater Park for a time and return with me to Limeridge. I referred him to Mr. Fairley for the details of this last arrangement. I assured him that I wrote with Laura's authority, and I ended by entreating him to act in her name, to the utmost extent of his power, and with the least possible loss of time. The letter to Mr. Fairley occupied me next. I appealed to him on the terms which I had mentioned to Laura as the most likely to make him bestir himself. I enclosed a copy of my letter to the lawyer to show him how serious the case was, and I represented our removal to Limeridge as the only compromise which would prevent the danger and distress of Laura's present position from inevitably affecting her uncle as well as herself at no very distant time. When I had done, and had sealed and directed the two envelopes, I went back with the letters to Laura's room to show her that they were written. "'Has anybody disturbed you?' I asked, when she opened the door to me. "'Nobody has knocked,' she replied. "'But I heard someone in the outer room. Was it a man or a woman? A woman. I heard the rustling of her gown. A rustling like silk. Yes, like silk.' Madame Fosco had evidently been watching outside. The mischief she might do by herself was little to be feared but the mischief she might do, as a willing instrument in her husband's hands, was too formidable to be overlooked. What became of the rustling of the gown when you no longer heard it in the ante-room, I inquired? Did you hear it go past your wall along the passage? Yes, I kept still and listened and just heard it. Which way did it go? Towards your room. I considered again. The sound had not caught my ears, but I was then deeply absorbed in my letters, and I write with a heavy hand and a quill pen, scraping and scratching noisily over the paper. It was more likely that Madame Fosco would hear the scraping of my pen than that I should hear the rustling of her dress. Another reason, if I had wanted one, for not trusting my letters to the post-bag in the hall. Laura saw me thinking. "'More difficulties,' she said wearily. "'More difficulties and more dangers.' "'No dangers,' I replied. 
some little difficulty, perhaps. I am thinking of the safest way of putting my two letters into Fanny's hands. You have really written them, then? Oh, Marian, run no risks. Pray, pray, run no risks. No, no, no fear. Let me see. What o'clock is it now? It was a quarter to six. There will be time for me to get to the village inn and to come back again before dinner. If I waited till the evening, I might find no second opportunity of safely leaving the house. Keep the key turned in the lock, Laura, I said, and don't be afraid about me. If you hear any inquiries made, call through the door and say that I am gone out for a walk. When shall you be back? Before dinner without fail. Courage, my love. By this time to-morrow you will have a clear-headed, trustworthy man acting for your good. Mr. Gilmore's partner is our next best friend to Mr. Gilmore himself. A moment's reflection, as soon as I was alone, convinced me that I had better not appear in my walking dress until I had first discovered what was going on in the lower part of the house. I had not ascertained yet whether Sir Percival was indoors or out. The singing of the canaries in the library and the smell of tobacco smoke that came through the door, which was not closed, told me at once where the Count was. I looked over my shoulder as I passed the doorway, and saw, to my surprise, that he was exhibiting the docility of the birds in his most engagingly polite manner to the housekeeper. He must have specially invited her to see them, for she would never have thought of going into the library of her own accord. The man's slightest actions had a purpose of some kind at the bottom of every one of them, what could be his purpose here? It was no time, then, to inquire into his motives. I looked about for Madame Fosco next, and found her following her favourite circle round and round the fish-pond. I was a little doubtful how she would meet me, after the outbreak of jealousy of which I had been the cause so short a time since. But her husband had tamed her in the interval, and she now spoke to me with the same civility as usual. My only object in addressing myself to her was to ascertain if she knew what had become of Sir Percival. I contrived to refer to him indirectly, and after a little fencing on either side, she at last mentioned that he had gone out. "'Which of the horses has he taken?' I asked carelessly. "'None of them,' she replied. "'He went away two hours since on foot. As I understood it, his object was to make fresh inquiries about the woman named Anne Catherick. He appears to be unreasonably anxious about tracing her. Do you happen to know if she is dangerously mad, Miss Halcombe? I do not, Countess. Are you going in? Yes, I think so. I suppose it will soon be time to dress for dinner. We entered the house together. Madame Fosco strolled into the library and closed the door. I went at once to fetch my hat and shawl. Every moment was of importance, if I was to get to Fanny at the inn and be back before dinner. When I crossed the hall again, no one was there, and the singing of the birds in the library had ceased. I could not stop to make any fresh investigations. I could only assure myself that the way was clear, and then leave the house with the two letters safe in my pocket. On my way to the village, I prepared myself for the possibility of meeting Sir Percival, as long as I had him to deal with alone, I felt certain of not losing my presence of mind. Any woman who is sure of her own wits 
is a match at any time for a man who is not sure of his own temper. I had no such fear of Sir Percival as I had of the Count. Instead of fluttering, it had composed me to hear of the errand on which he had gone out. While the tracing of Anne Catherick was the great anxiety that occupied him, Laura and I might hope for some cessation of any active persecution at his hands. For our sakes, now, as well as for Anne's, I hoped and prayed fervently that she might still escape him. I walked on as briskly as the heat would let me, till I reached the crossroad which led to the village, looking back from time to time to make sure that I was not followed by any one. Nothing was behind me all the way but an empty country wagon. The noise made by the lumbering wheels annoyed me, and when I found that the wagon took the road to the village as well as myself, I stopped to let it go by and pass out of hearing. As I looked toward it, more attentively than before, I thought I detected at intervals the feet of a man walking close behind it, the carter being in front by the side of the horses. The part of the cross-road which I had just passed over was so narrow that the wagon coming after me brushed the trees and thickets on either side, and I had to wait until it went by before I could test the correctness of my impression. Apparently that impression was wrong, for when the wagon had passed me the road behind it was quite clear. I reached the inn without meeting Sir Percival, and without noticing anything more, and was glad to find that the landlady had received Fanny with all possible kindness. The girl had a little parlour to sit in, away from the noise of the tap-room, and a clean bedchamber at the top of the house. She began crying again at the sight of me, and said, poor soul, truly enough, that it was dreadful to feel herself turned out into the world, as if she had committed some unpardonable fault, when no blame could be laid at her door by anybody, not even by her master who had sent her away. "'Try to make the best of it, Fanny,' I said. "'Your mistress and I will stand your friends, and will take care that your character shall not suffer.' Now listen to me. I have very little time to spare, and I am going to put a great trust in your hands. I wish you to take care of these two letters. The one with the stamp on it you are to put into the post when you reach London to-morrow. The other, directed to Mr. Fairley, you are to deliver to him yourself as soon as you get home. Keep both the letters about you and give them up to no one. They are of the last importance to your mistress's interests." Fanny put the letters into the bosom of her dress. "'There they shall stop, miss,' she said, "'till I have done what you tell me.' "'Mind you are at the station in good time to-morrow morning,' I continued. "'And when you see the housekeeper at Limeridge, "'give her my compliments, "'and say that you are in my service "'until Lady Glyde is able to take you back. "'We may meet again sooner than you think. "'So keep a good heart.' and don't miss the seven o'clock train. Thank you, miss, thank you kindly. It gives me courage to hear your voice again. Please to offer my duty to my lady, and say I left all the things as tidy as I could in the time. Oh, dear, dear, who will dress her for dinner to-day? It really breaks my heart, miss, to think of it. When I got back to the house, I had only a quarter of an hour to spare to put myself in order for dinner, and to say two words to Laura before I went downstairs. "'The letters are in Fanny's hands,' I whispered to her at the door. 
do you mean to join us at dinner oh no no not for the world has anything happened has any one disturbed you yes just now sir percival did he come in no he frightened me by a thump on the door outside i said who's there you know he answered will you alter your mind and tell me the rest you shall sooner or later i'll wring it out of you you know where anne catherick is at this moment indeed indeed i said i don't you do he called back i'll crush your obstinacy mind that i'll wring it out of you he went away with those words went away marion hardly five minutes ago he had not found anne we were safe for that night he had not found her yet you are going downstairs marion come up again in the evening yes yes don't be uneasy if i am a little late i must be careful not to give offence by leaving them too soon the dinner-bell rang and i hastened away sir percival took madame fosco into the dining-room and the count gave me his arm he was hot and flushed and was not dressed with his customary care and completeness had he too been out before dinner and been late in getting back or was he only suffering from the heat a little more severely than usual however this might be he was unquestionably troubled by some secret annoyance or anxiety which with all his powers of deception he was not able entirely to conceal through the whole of dinner he was almost as silent as sir percival himself and he every now and then looked at his wife with an expression of furtive uneasiness which was quite new in my experience of him the one social obligation which he seemed to be self-possessed enough to perform as carefully as ever was the obligation of being persistently civil and attentive to me what vile object he has in view i cannot still discover but be the design what it may invariable politeness towards myself invariable humility towards laura and invariable suppression at any cost of sir percival's clumsy violence have been the means he has resolutely and impenetrably used to get to his end ever since he set foot in this house i suspected it when he first interfered in our favour on the day when the deed was produced in the library and i feel certain of it now when madame fosco and i rose to leave the table the count rose also to accompany us back to the drawing-room what are you going away for asked sir percival i mean you fosco i am going away because i have had dinner enough and wine enough answered the count be so kind percival as to make allowances for my foreign habit of going out with the ladies as well as coming in with them nonsense another glass of claret won't hurt you sit down again like an englishman i want half an hour's quiet talk with you over our wine a quiet talk possible with all my heart but not now and not over the wine later in the evening if you please later in the evening sybil said sir percival savagely sybil behaviour upon my soul to a man in his own house i had more than once seen him look at the count uneasily during dinner-time and had observed that the count carefully abstained from looking at him in return this circumstance coupled with the host's anxiety for a little quiet talk over the wine, and the guest's obstinate resolution not to sit down again at the table, revived in my memory the request which Sir Percival 
had vainly addressed to his friend earlier in the day to come out of the library and speak to him. The Count had deferred granting that private interview when it was first asked for in the afternoon, and had again deferred granting it when it was a second time asked for at the dinner-table. Whatever the coming subject of discussion between them might be, it was clearly an important subject in Sir Percival's estimation, and perhaps, judging from his evident reluctance to approach it, a dangerous subject as well, in the estimation of the Count. These considerations occurred to me while we were passing from the dining-room to the drawing-room. Sir Percival's angry commentary on his friend's desertion of him had not produced the slightest effect. The Count obstinately accompanied us to the tea-table, waited a minute or two in the room, went out into the hall, and returned with the post-bag in his hands. It was then eight o'clock, the hour at which the letters were always dispatched from Blackwater Park. "'Have you any letters for the post, Miss Halcombe?' he asked, approaching me with the bag. I saw Madame Fosco, who was making the tea, pause with the sugar-tongs in her hand to listen for my answer. "'No, Count, thank you, no letters to-day.' He gave the bag to the servant, who was then in the room, sat down at the piano, and played the air of the lively Neapolitan street-song, La Mia Carolina, twice over. His wife, who was usually the most deliberate of women in all her movements, made the tea as quickly as I could have made it myself, finished her own cup in two minutes, and quietly glided out of the room. I rose to follow her example, partly because I suspected her of attempting some treachery upstairs with Laura, partly because I was resolved not to remain alone in the same room with her husband. Before I could get to the door, the Count stopped me, by a request for a cup of tea. I gave him the cup of tea, and tried a second time to get away. He stopped me again, this time by going back to the piano, and suddenly appealing to me on a musical question, in which he declared that the honour of his country was concerned. I vainly pleaded my own total ignorance of music, and total want of taste in that direction. He only appealed to me again, with a vehemence which set all further protest on my part at defiance. The English and the Germans, he indignantly declared, were always reviling the Italians for their inability to cultivate the higher kinds of music. We were perpetually talking of our oratorios, and they were perpetually talking of their symphonies. Did we forget, and did they forget, his immortal friend and countryman Rossini, what was Moses in Egypt but a sublime oratorio, which was acted on the stage, instead of being coldly sung in a concert-room? What was the overture to William Tell but a symphony under another name? Had I heard Moses in Egypt, would I listen to this, and this, and this, and say if anything more sublimely sacred and grand had ever been composed by mortal man? and without waiting for a word of assent or dissent on my part, looking me hard in the face all the time, he began thundering on the piano, and singing to it with loud and lofty enthusiasm, only interrupting himself at intervals to announce to me fiercely the titles of the different pieces of music. Chorus of Egyptians in the Plague of Darkness, Miss Harcombe! Recitativo of Moses with the Tables of the Law! 
prayer on israelites at the passage of the red sea <laughs> is that sacred is that sublime the piano trembled under his powerful hands and the teacups on the table rattled as his big bass voice thundered out the notes and his heavy foot beat time on the floor there was something horrible something fierce and devilish in the outburst of his delight at his own singing and playing and in the triumph with which he watched its effect upon me as i shrank nearer and nearer to the door i was released at last not by my own efforts but by sir percival's interposition he opened the dining-room door and called out angrily to know what that infernal noise meant the count instantly got up from the piano ah oh, if percival is coming he said harmony and melody are both at an end the muse of music miss halcombe deserts us in dismay and i the fat old minstrel exhale the rest of my enthusiasm in the open air he stalked out into the veranda put his hands in his pockets and resumed the recitativo of moses sotto voce in the garden i heard sir percival call after him from the dining-room window but he took no notice he seemed determined not to hear that long deferred quiet talk between them was still to be put off was still to wait for the count's absolute will and pleasure he had detained me in the drawing-room nearly half an hour from the time when his wife left us where had she been and what had she been doing in that interval i went upstairs to ascertain but i made no discoveries and when i questioned laura i found that she had not heard anything nobody had disturbed her no faint rustling of the silk dress had been audible either in the ante-room or in the passage it was then twenty minutes to nine after going to my room to get my journal I returned and sat with Laura, sometimes writing, sometimes stopping to talk with her. Nobody came near us, and nothing happened. We remained together till ten o'clock. I then rose, said my last cheering words, and wished her good-night. She locked her door again, after we had arranged that I should come in and see her the first thing in the morning. I had a few sentences more to add to my diary before going to bed myself and as i went down again to the drawing-room after leaving laura for the last time that weary day i resolved merely to show myself there to make my excuses and then to retire an hour earlier than usual for the night sir percival and the count and his wife were sitting together sir percival was yawning in an easy-chair the count was reading madame fosco was fanning herself strange to say her face was flushed now she who never suffered from the heat was most undoubtedly suffering from it to-night i am afraid countess you are not quite so well as usual i said the very remark i was about to make to you she replied you are looking pale my dear my dear it was the first time she had ever addressed me with that familiarity there was an insolent smile too on her face when she said the words i am suffering from one of my bad headaches i answered coldly ah indeed want of exercise i suppose a walk before dinner would have been just the thing for you she referred to the walk with a strange emphasis had she seen me go out no matter if she had 
The letters were safe now in Fanny's hands. "'Come and have a smoke, Fosco,' said Sir Percival, rising with another uneasy look at his friend. "'With pleasure, Percival, when the ladies have gone to bed,' replied the Count. "'Excuse me, Countess, if I set you the example of retiring,' I said. "'The only remedy for such a headache as mine is going to bed.' I took my leave. There was the same insolent smile on the woman's face when I shook hands with her. Sir Percival paid no attention to me. He was looking impatiently at Madame Fosco, who showed no signs of leaving the room with me. The Count smiled to himself behind his book. There was yet another delay to that quiet talk with Sir Percival, and the Countess was the impediment this time. End of chapter 18